All right, everybody. Welcome to the Chris and Paul show. I think this is episode four. It's episode four. Pretty positive. Episode four. And episode four today is going to be kind of a funny episode. So we are going to cover the topic of whether or not muscle is torn, that torn down and built back up bigger. As always, welcome, uh, welcome my co-host, Chris Beardsley. How are you doing, Chris? Doing well. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Okay, so um, that's what that's what we say or hear online is muscle is torn down and, and built back up bigger. You've heard this many times, right? Absolutely. So the joke that was funny that we made in the um, kind of the off non-recording part of the last podcast was um, I always get that if I make a, any kind of content and I say muscles not torn down and built back up bigger and someone will immediately go and you started laughing, they'll go, well, then how does it work? And that's the, the question, right? So I think that the issue is this is still so commonly taught in universities and personal training certificates and all of that stuff that people just repeat it and they don't ever necessarily question if this is true. And I think that has gained some traction over the last few years that are pe some people are finally saying, hey, muscle's not actually torn down and built back up bigger, but it's repeated often that I would consider this one of the most common myths that's repeated by like bros online. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And the interesting thing is that from a physiological perspective, the two processes, hypertrophy and muscle damage repair, or muscle damage and then muscle damage repair, are completely different. I mean, that's that's the really interesting thing that we see when we look at the physiology itself. So that's kind of what we want to separate out here. Well, there's a multitude of things that I will get into to separate all these things out. But I want to, before we like get down the kind of the column of list of things that we have, like the topics we want to want to cover here is to, to do this in kind of the really basic terms for people who are listening. So I think when somebody says, okay, well, we'll go through a couple. So when somebody says muscles torn down, but like a bigger, one of the common terms that they throw out there, I guess to try to sound sciencey is micro tears. Fibers get micro, this is the one I hear, fibers get micro tears. And how do you think muscle grows? They get fibers fibers get micro tears and the body makes them thicker and stronger and bigger and that's how you get muscle somebody even said to me and i i use this as a comment to reply back to you on tiktok was that muscles get torn down they create scar tissue that's how they're bigger that's oh, that one was a new one for me that it's scar tissue which is you know non-contractile elements within uh, we i'm not even going to get into I don't even know how to address that. I didn't know how to address the the fact that somebody actually thought that muscles were bigger due to scar tissue. So, but the, it's still the premise of there's this tearing, right? There's these tiny little tears. That's the best way I could think they tried to explain it or define it. There's like these micro tears. There's these tiny little tears in the muscle that happen. And because of those tears, that that's how the muscle gets thicker and bigger. So, not only does that not happen, but that wouldn't even make sense to happen as part of the what we would call like the protective process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to kind of uh, summarize what's going on in each particular case before we get into the, the, the finer details. Basically, when we are st uh, stimulating hypertrophy, we are stimulating each individual muscle fiber to grow. And the way that happens is that the receptors uh, which are probably located on the cell membrane, detect a certain amount of mechanical tension, and then they tell some of the myofibrils inside that muscle fiber to 
basically split out into smaller myofibrils. So instead of you know a number of large myofibrils, we have a larger number of smaller myofibrils. And then those myofibrils, which are slightly smaller, then um, basically as we elevate uh, myofibrillar protein synthesis after the workout, we add new actins and myosins to those smaller myofibrils and build them back up into larger ones. So basically the process of adding myofibrils is very clearly defined and we kind of understand how that works. If, on the other hand, we look at the muscle damage process, when we damage a myofibril, then there's an inflammatory process that clears that myofibril away completely. So essentially what we're saying here is that the process of myofibrillar addition and the process of um, myofibrillar damage and repair are completely and utterly different because one involves the splitting of a myofibril and the growing of the two smaller myofibrils that result from that split into larger ones. And the damage process involves completely removing the damaged uh, myofibril itself. Now, whether that myofibril is torn or whether it's damaged in another way is really academic at this point because it doesn't matter. But ultimately, the two processes are actually different. So the fact that people originally kind of proposed that we might be able to get one process to mimic the other, I think, is, is largely uh, not very uh, logical, not, not, not really a very plausible hypothesis. So ultimately, we have a logical explanation of how hypertrophy occurs, and it doesn't involve the muscle damage repair process. So to back up a little bit, so that way anybody listening might be a little bit lost on there. Generally speaking, let's go from a whole, we're looking at a whole muscle. Uh, and then from there, we break it down into what we call fascicles. And then within the fascicles, we actually have the fibers. And then within the fibers, we have the myofibrils. And then the myofibrils, we have the contractile elements known as the sarcomere. So that's kind of the high level to smallest, like, you know, piece that we're looking at here in terms of functionality. So the to go from the sarcomeres, which are the functional proteins, the elements that actually provide muscle contraction, one step up is the the my are the myofibrils. So when we're talking about when something gets torn here, when they would say something like they most of the people talking like online don't necessarily understand all of these different layers that are happening within the muscular architecture so if we're talking about something as simple as a, when they say a tear i'll say well, what got torn and they were like a muscle fiber i'm like if you tore the fiber that's that's a significant injury yeah i mean this is very i mean muscle fibers probably can withstand being torn in half but um because they have enormously uh, capable repair processes but ultimately yeah a complete tear of an entire muscle fiber would be would be i think quite an, unusual <laughs> you're you're not training it again in the next few days most likely not, you're not, gonna not, yeah you're not moving future. it very much no, yeah not really no it's uh, i would I think, think that then. when somebody has something like when they uh pull a hamstring you're probably getting closer to what almost like if you're getting what people are talking about in terms of like tearing micro tears something that's significant like a hamstring pull or something probably more closely related to actual like real micro tears at the fiber level yeah so i mean obviously we kind of got to differentiate between what an exercise science uh research would would think when they were saying micro tears and what what somebody in the fitness industry more generally might think when they're saying micro tears i mean i think when researchers say the word micro tear they're generally referring to small kind of uh, sort of rips in the cell membrane which is absolutely something that does happen and we can talk right. about how that affects things later on but you could tear the cell membrane obviously you know that's not really logically going to be a stimulus for hypertrophy because 
as tearing a, a cell membrane isn't then logically going to cause an addition of myofibrils <laughs> because you know why would it i mean that's not very logical at all it's not a stimulus that's going to affect a myofibril if you tear a cell, a cell membrane that's exactly that's the point i was going to say it's like so if we have there's a, there's other things we just kind of went down through the layering right of whole muscle size fascicles to to fibers to myofibrils and everything but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that are around the fibers too that you know that we have to talk about so when somebody would say okay there's there's you have micro tears. I would always ask, well, where, where is this micro tear at? Yeah, and absolutely. So and I think that's where the researcher would say, well, logically it would be of the myofibrils itself. I mean, I think that's probably the, the most sensible interpretation of, you know, kind of micro tears in the context of producing hypertrophy. But obviously if we're talking about micro tears to the cell membrane or to the kind of intermediate filament system or to any other structure within the muscle fiber, then, you know, logically that would probably not be expected to stimulate hypertrophy, even in the context of somebody who's defending the muscle damage kind of hypothesis of hypertrophy. I think ultimately the only logical place for the myofibrils to occur to, to tear sorry and then produce hypertrophy would be the myofibrils themselves because right. you know that's you know that's that's kind of the interpretation that we would we would probably uh, look at so when when people say micro tears let's let's actually boom and then we'll get into list guy i just want to clear this little topic up so that somebody can go to the rest of it and understand we do know that like micro tears can happen what are the layers that can we can have micro tears at so as we talked about there can be damage and I, I think of damage when i hear muscle damage i think of something kind of different is when we talk about like micro tears can occur because damage can occur uh or does occur due to a, an increase in in proteases that's a response to more calcium ions and all of that stuff do you feel like that we're when people are saying micro tears that we're there's enough of a differentiation between say muscle damage or micro tears or would muscle damage also be an offset uh, process that would occur due to potential quote unquote micro tears. But I think the thing is, where can we have micro tears at in, in terms of, can it be at the, at the sarcolemma? Can it be at the endomesium, the paramecium? Can it be the T-tubules? Can it be, there's there what there's a lot of stuff in there that we can talk about where there could be quote unquote micro tears. Where could there be micro tears at? Yeah, I mean, basically pretty much anything inside the muscle fiber can experience damage. Um, whether that uh, damage can be appropriately described as a tear <laughs> is a separate question. Right. Because ultimately uh, that, and I don't really want to get into that at this point, because uh, that really kind of starts us down the, the route of actually trying to figure out what is causing the muscle damage in the first place, which I think we should punt for later on in this in this podcast. But right. ultimately, if we're talking about just damage in, in the sense that a structure has become damaged as a result of a previous bout of exercise, then literally almost anything inside the fiber can get damaged, whether it's the cell membrane, whether it's the uh, electrochemical junction, the triadic junction, whether it's the intermediate filament system, whether it's the myofibrils themselves, anything really there, tight in, anything in there is going to get damaged. And, you know, if, if people want to describe that as tears for the purpose of this uh, kind of section of, of the podcast, that's fine. I don't think it makes that, that much difference. Uh, the point is ultimately that, you know, we wouldn't really expect anything um, other than the myofibrils being torn to then stimulate hypertrophy, just logically speaking. I mean, if you start tearing cell membrane, why is that going to cause myofibrillary? That was what I wanted to separate. Yeah, that was what I want to separate off is like, so if we're tearing cell membrane, um, there's no way I could ever, and I, I sit down and try to postulate like, okay, here's the line of thinking this question came from, and this is where they were going with it. And I'm like, so if we add micro tears of cell membrane, 
why would there be an increase in myofibrils due to cell membrane getting micro tears that makes abs there's no way you can create a some type of connection there between that happening no absolutely not the the adaption has got to be logically speaking to defend the muscle fiber in the future against that kind of damage to that cell membrane adding more myofibrils is going to make it the muscle fiber better able to tear the cell membrane rather than less <laughs> able to tear the cell membrane so okay i think that was a yeah really i think that was make a, any sense I think that was a perfect setup for actually getting into the link. Now, I just wanted to set the stage so that way somebody can go. Well, they talked about all these various topics, but they didn't actually kind of get to the uh, like defining, you know, what all those things were, you know, at the kind of what's being taught at the university level and then how people potentially like arrived at this this thought process of these things happening. So I th I think for the sake of discussing this, we can we can include just the fact that when people talk about micro tears or muscles torn down and built back up bigger, ultimately, I think what is being referred to as just muscle damage itself. Yeah, I think so. I mean, ultimately, what we're saying is that, you know, hypertrophy occurs because muscle fibers add new myofibrils. That's basically how hypertrophy occurs. We're adding new myofibrils in parallel inside muscle fibers. The process of hypertrophy involves splitting those myofibrils into smaller ones and then building them back up into larger myofibrils. I mean, that's basically how hypertrophy occurs. There's no damage to that process. It's just uh, one half of the myofibril goes off in one direction, another half goes off in the other direction. And then we just add, um, uh, you know, surfactants and myosins to those existing halves. Uh, the muscle damage process involves completely removing a damaged myofibril. Uh, we either if you think it's by mechanical tension fine to, uh, the muscle the myofibril is torn and then that then uh, disappears and then we have to replace that with a new one there's no kind of hypertrophic process going on there it's just replacing something that's been damaged um obviously i don't think that uh, myofibrils are torn <laughs> i think that the damage occurs through a separate mechanism which we'll talk about later on but ultimately it doesn't matter for this part of the conversation we've got two separate processes and obviously as we've just been saying if damage occurs to anything else in the muscle fiber it would not logically cause an addition of myofibrils because we're damaging the intermediate filament system okay well let's get some new intermediate filaments to replace the ones we've just damaged or we damage the cell membrane okay well let's repair the cell membrane and put it back the way it was maybe but, change it in some way okay everything you just said though yeah, yeah and where they get lost right there is that the they consistently confuse exactly one of those processes and they confuse they they end up conflating those two processes right so that they conflate the process of there's a damaged myofibril it gets replaced through everything that we see me uh, mechanistically happen with muscle protein synthesis, myofibril protein synthesis, which is a really important part. So when myofibril protein synthesis is elevated, it can go to creating that new myofibril that's been damaged. And so one of the, the places I think has been completed is that you have the damaged myofibril. We have an increase in muscle protein synthesis. Um, it goes in there and replaces it. There's not a new one. So when we're talking about hypertrophy and the splitting in half and creating a daughter myofibril, we're talking about two new fiber myofibrils in there or two myofibrils that have a new one and there's they're just smaller and then we just grow those over time exactly the two processes are so completely different from each other that it's almost amazing that people ever consider the possibility that muscle damage causes hypertrophy it's just on a on a muscle fiber level they're not the same thing at all but as you say we absolutely are going to get elevations in myofibrillar protein synthesis to replace damaged myofibrils obviously i mean we have to because otherwise how would you build one so the, the processes are different but they are going to involve very similar elevations in myofibrillar protein synthesis post-workout 
Okay, I, I think we've laid the groundwork pretty well for this one to actually get into the thing there. That was, I think that's pretty good. I think most people should be able to go forwards from here and kind of get an idea of, of what we're laying out. So <clears throat> as we did with the metabolic stress one, the thing that we wanted to do was also lay the groundwork for, you know, how did this even get get punted out there as an idea? And I think, okay, so we when we talked about metabolic stress, and I always, when I draw from memory here, it's metabolic stress, I think was around 93 to 95-ish. And then muscle damage was around, I think want to say 91. I could have those mixed up, but it was basically somewhere early to mid nineties. Both of these mechanisms started getting proposed as potential um, mediators for hypertrophy. So I think muscle damage was 91 um, I think somewhere around that time and the original reasons that they had these hypotheses. Okay. So the ones you got listed that we're going to cover is eccentric contractions versus concentric contractions. And I think this also went back to the greater hypertrophy they saw from some of those eccentric versus concentric contraction studies. Now, now for people who um, are listening to this, uh, Chris and I like for these to be a little bit more organic and fun. So we actually, some of the things we do discuss, but there's some things we don't discuss. So when I go through the list of stuff, he's like, he wants to make sure that we cover. Uh, we don't always go through these because we do want them to be a little bit more organic and fun. But I, when I looked at this, I'm guessing, I was like, Chris is going to talk about, I think, the eccentric versus concentric studies initially that were done that showed eccentric contractions, showed greater hypertrophy outcomes. And I want to say they postulated at that time that the muscle damage was one of the things that created that additional amount of hypertrophy exactly so i've got a couple of um, kind of uh, thoughts straight away really here but obviously to just describe what was going on at the time um people were seeing that uh, eccentric training programs caused more hypertrophy than concentric training programs they also noticed the eccentric training programs caused more uh of post-workout fatigue which is indicative of muscle damage and therefore they said hey maybe it's the fact that we're getting more of this uh kind of muscle damage that's then stimulating great uh, hypertrophy in this particular case what's really interesting though is that simultaneously you've got another group of people who are looking at the uh eccentric training programs versus the concentric training programs and seeing that the difference is isn't that great in terms of hypertrophy and uh, also the level of force being produced during these entry contractions is way way higher than what we can get during a concentric contraction i'm sort of speculating that there's higher mechanical tension in those eccentric contractions and so uh, why uh, would we not see you know way way more higher hypertrophy than we actually tend to see in the eccentric training program compared to the concentric they're seeing minimal differences or very small differences and they're saying why aren't the differences bigger and they actually use that as evidence for metabolic stress so basically they're saying that the reason there wasn't a kind of a more a larger difference between the eccentric training and the concentric training uh, is in terms of hypertrophy outputs is because of the metabolic, the metabolic stress, and the stress made up for contractions. it yeah. yeah so basically you've got two kind of these two two hypotheses which are essentially uh kind of fundamentally exclusive of each other in in terms of interpreting the data and yet they both I don't know why I'm, I don't know why I never thought about how funny that is so you have the eccentric versus concentric and anytime the eccentric would outperform the concentric they go well it's because it had more muscle damage and anytime the concentric was able to level it out they go well that's because it's got more metabolic stress it's actually pretty funny when you think about it uh, it, yeah, absolutely. The two mechanisms are actually fundamentally incompatible with each other in, in that context, not, not, not more generally, but in that context. 
and of course that that just makes it kind of even more ridiculous that we were considering these kind of mechanisms in the first place but yeah being more serious um in terms of the the, the muscle damage hypothesis it was yeah it was proposed that basically the greater damage experienced after the eccentrics was a trigger for hypertrophy now of course now we understand that we get a load more passive tension in those eccentric contractions and that's uh, the contributor to potentially uh, slightly greater hypertrophy within certain constraints and we understand that you know a longitudinal hypertrophy in the form of sarcomeridensis is much more limited than uh, the addition of, of kind of myofibrils in parallel so you know the, there's a limitation there we also understand that the eccentrics have lower levels of activation so they're not going to get all of the high threshold motor units uh, activated so you know there's limitations on those eccentrics that suppress the level of hypertrophy a little bit um, you know lower than we might expect it to be purely based on the level of mechanical tension that we're observing you know but um you know uh, ultimately we don't need and never needed a muscle damage hypothesis in this particular uh, case because very simply um you know uh, we've got passive tension that will do the job for us yeah exactly and that that actually that myth still is perpetuated pretty often about the concentric versus eccentric stuff and they're like well they'll say they'll go back to the study show that eccentric contractions uh grow uh more muscle than concentric contractions and again there's that after that got leveled out they just explained that, that away and that the concentric contractions were able to somehow make up for it through through metabolic stress and that was the the thing that added the additional hypertrophy on top of the concentric contractions but this was the original reason for the muscle damage um, hypothesis was that um that the damage from the eccentric contractions was significantly greater and that that was also kind of what caused the additional amount of hypertrophy. So what really happens in those situations is that the muscle, when there's a significant amount of muscle damage, there's really to get into like bullet point two about what really is going to go on here is that there's really a just a repair process that has to happen and i don't know if this is where we'd actually want to get into the repeated bout effect if you want to do it from that angle and kind of the best way that i can give this to somebody who's like well how does it happen when they always ask me well how does, how does it work because when we always say well muscles torn not torn down build back bigger and they go well, how does it work i'm like well you what really happens when a muscle is damaged is that there's repair processes that happen and once we kind of get those protective mechanisms in place at the cellular level then we actually see that a the stimulus that's provided in training can go towards that where we talked about that splitting of myofibrils in the first part see we set that up pretty well i think this time the splitting of myofibrils then it can be like okay i've got the protective mechanisms in place so now i can actually what i need to do is the adaptations that are occurring due to um, this particular type of stress means that i'm going to increase the number of myofibrils that i have yeah, absolutely. So um, in terms of, again, setting this in context of, of exercise science history, um, you know, eccentric uh, contractions versus concentric contractions was kind of one of the first observations that was made that kind of was put in uh, defense of this of this hypothesis of muscle damage stimulating hypertrophy the second one is then the observation that we have these anabolic signaling uh, kind of uh, processes in uh, the post-workout period um, you know which seem to be uh, stimulated to a greater extent after uh, kind of more muscle damage. Yeah, I, I, that was actually, yeah, I skipped right over that because that was the thing they initially tied in because they were able to say, well, we see this massive increase in muscle protein synthesis when this damage occurs. So hypertrophy has to be occurring. And what was not really, I don't know why it wasn't either thought of or just 
they didn't look any deeper into it at that point. They just saw muscle protein. Okay, like we have an increase in muscle protein synthesis due to this incredible amount of damage. So therefore, hypertrophy has to be occurring. But instead, what was really occurring was the repair process that we we were talking about earlier. Whenever you have myofibril that's damaged, and it simply just gets replaced with a repaired myofibril or a new myofibril. Exactly, and this kind of um, observation of this anabolic signaling process that's 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 triggered by the damage that's present then got blended in with the inflammatory signaling process. So we ended up with these multiple sort of signaling processes which are intertwined. Now they're intertwined because, as we'll talk about later, the inflammation process is actually uh, a key part of the muscle damage and muscle damage repair process or processes. So ultimately, obviously, there's going to be an interconnection between the inflammatory signaling responses and the anabolic signaling responses. So basically, after any kind of muscle damaging event, we're going to get these anabolic signaling processes, which appear to be very closely related to inflammatory signaling. And so again, researchers say, hey, you know, inflammatory signaling is closely interrelated with anabolic signaling. It must be in, uh, therefore related to hypertrophy. And look, we get loads more of that after uh, kind of eccentric contractions or after muscle damaging <laughs> contractions. It's like, well, you know, obviously we do because it's part of the muscle damage process. Why wouldn't we? And yet, because there is this uh, kind of interrelation uh, relationship between these things it gets then used as additional kind of uh, kind of observations or defense of the idea that muscle damage is stimulating hypertrophy it's all because of an initial misunderstanding of what that inflammatory process is actually doing or what that anabolic signaling process is actually doing they're actually repairing myofibrils or more other parts of the of the muscle fiber they're not actually stimulating hypertrophy but ultimately that's the second kind of block of of evidence that was put forward in defense of the hypothesis the idea that um, we are sort of seeing higher levels of anabolic signaling higher levels of inflammatory signaling after muscle damaging workouts and those are interpreted as hypertrophic stimuli and they're absolutely not they're just repairing uh, muscle fibers that have been damaged so that was its that was another one. I like a, I like to go out and post this up and I like to see all the various comments that I'll get back to it. And that was also one that somebody brought up because I like to see these, to, how people try to, try to defend these particular stances. And one of the comments was, so what you're saying is, is that muscle, you have muscle damage that creates the protective mechanisms and then only then hypertrophy can occur. So muscle damage has to occur for hypertrophy to occur. So basically they did exactly kind of what you just said was like they said if muscle damage occurs and muscle damage has to be a precursor to hypertrophy. Well, let's 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 back up and, and, and look at that one in more detail, because basically uh, when um, and this is actually a great opportunity for me to just clarify a little bit around this idea of repeat about effect and what's happening, because um, people treat the repeat about effect as something unusual. The reality is it's not unusual at all. It's basically a fatigue resistance mechanism. So like any other fatigue resistance mechanism, it's actually improving our ability to tolerate certain types of fatigue. And essentially what um, the repeated bout effect is doing is improving our ability to tolerate um, calcium unrelated fatigue mechanisms, which we'll get into more detail later on. But essentially uh, we are becoming better able to tolerate this particular uh, type of fatigue. Now, uh, one of, or there's many uh, elements of this process, but one of them interestingly seems to be the ability to 
reduce the localized damage to some of the uh, key uh, structures inside the uh, mosfire, including the triadic junction and various parts maybe of the sarcoplasmic reticulum as well. So essentially, one of the key early phases that we go through when we start training is starting to uh, improve our ability to tolerate damage to these areas, perhaps by making them slightly more robust in some way. And it's unlikely to contribute meaningfully to an increase in fiber size, but potentially they are increasing uh, kind of to a certain extent. I mean, we're not talking about myofibrillar addition here. We're talking about uh, kind of areas of the sarcoplasmic reticulum, perhaps, or you know, maybe even the cell membrane. But ultimately, that uh, that process of improving our resistance to that fatigue mechanism uh, tends to occur early on in strength training programs. But critically, it is only really going to be uh, produced when we experience types of training that are more fatiguing in that respect. If, for example, we were to just do concentric only contractions, um, or if we were to do, you know, uh, strength training with lots of reps in reserve, or, you know, relatively heavy loads, we'd be unlikely to start to develop these kind of fatigue resistances. And yet we would still stimulate hypertrophy. We don't have to go through these processes. But if we want to train in ways that do cause this type of fatigue, then we are naturally going to go through that process in order to uh, create that fatigue resistance. And then obviously later on, we'll be able to train without creating quite so much of that type of fatigue. So the 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 Part, yeah, you hit on it. The part that I wanted to address there for somebody taking that stance was, is that we see equal degrees of hypertrophy outcomes um, when we've looked at the eccentric and the concentric training studies, yet there was significantly more muscle damage in the eccentric. So what I was trying to get at when somebody tried to make that stance was that, yes, there's protective mechanisms. Even if you're getting a small amount of muscle damage, there's still going to be some protective mechanisms that will be put in place due to that, uh, a small amount of muscle damage, but you still, it doesn't, there's no additive effect from the increased muscle damage. We just see the protective mechanisms that are going to be occurring across probably a, a greater degree of muscle fibers that that's going to be occurring. And when we, you're talking there about um, some of the protective mechanisms that are put, put in place that are more fatigue resistant, the, the first one I generally think of is a certain degree of fiber type shifting that probably occurred because we have a good amount of data on fiber type shifting uh, that does occur after um, initial bouts of exercise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's there's kind of three big ones. I think basically fiber type shifting is a big one. I think that sarcomerogenesis is another big one because I think it reduces the opening of stretch activated ion channels. Again, something we'll talk about later on. Um, but, you know, I think also now it's starting to become clear that we are uh, also creating a bit more of a robust structure in terms of maybe the intermediate filament system or maybe, you know, the triadic junction or some kind of changes to sarcoplasmic reticulum. I think those kind of uh, adaptions are additionally kind of protecting those uh, structures from being uh, damaged in the context of fatiguing exercise. But ultimately, you know, it's a fatigue resistance adaption. It's not hypertrophy. The two uh, things are very, very uh, sort of specific in their own right and, and, and quite different from one another. And for when I talk about fiber type shifting, for anybody who doesn't understand, when we want to talk about fiber type shifting, is that one of the protective mechanisms that we talk about with repeat about, about effect in fiber type shifting is when the fibers actually change from a more what we consider a more fast switch, a more oxidative type fiber. So they go from um, what would it be like more like type, type 2X down, type type 2X 2X down to like a, if, yeah. if you have any type 2X fibers and are fortunate enough to have any multi, great multitude of type 2X fibers, then when we talk about fiber type shifting, they'd go to a slightly 
slower twitch fiber. That doesn't mean it's low twitch because somebody's going to hear that and say slow twitch. It just means it's a little more protective because it's going to be slightly more oxidative than a, than whatever type it was. So uh, a yeah. fiber will go to slightly more oxidative so that it has better protective mechanisms because more oxidative fibers tend to have greater uh, mitochondrial density. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we'll get into the reasons of exactly why that is later on. But at the moment, basically, a shift from type 2X to type 2A is, is likely to be protective in the context of uh, calcium amylator fatigue and, and this uh, kind of uh, damage that we tend to see. So uh, let me processes. also clarify that one, too, because somebody will end up reversing that mechanism. We, You know, I see you laughing. You know what I'm talking about right now. Uh, people will say, oh, well, that's because if you start doing, um, you see people doing endurance work and they'll either, they start lifting and then they have type, fiber type shifts to more fast switch. But we really don't see that. In, 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 you're making that face. I've heard this go both ways is people will say, if you stop lifting weights and go do endurance work, you'll have all these fiber type shiftings where you go to like all type one fibers. And I'm like, that's not, we get some fiber type shifting. It's, there's not these massive jumps in fiber type shifting. I just want to clarify that because people like to take these big leaps. And I've seen them talk about this both ways. They're like, well, you take a marathon runner and put them in the gym. They got this muscle nest because they, they, they transformed all these bro misters one. They transformed all their type one fibers to type two fibers. I'm like, that's not what happened. I know you yeah, think it's silly not. and absurd. I hear these see, see these things online. So for the people that come through that are that are still like at just a bro level, I just want them to understand when we talk about fiber type shifting, it's part of what we see in the repeated bout effect for protective mechanisms. And it just means that those particular fibers go to a little bit more protective I, I sit there and I think how did I dumb this down at level so they go from being less oxidative where when they get damaged they get highly damaged and then essentially the mechanical processes that happen for repair after that say let me create an increase in mitochondrial density so that way when this happens in the future I'm not as heavily damaged I guess that's the best way I can try to explain that in small terms right yeah, absolutely. So once again, we're talking about processes that are completely different from hypertrophy. You know, the process of improving fatigue resistance is a completely different process from, uh, you know, sort of uh, creating increases in myofibrillar number. So, uh, you know, and, and it's a process that we may or may not need to go through depending on the type of training we're doing. You know, if we're doing very high volume, light load strength training to failure as part of our routines, then this is mechanism is going to absolutely happen and it's going to be necessary in order to protect the muscle fibers as we progress through our training program but if we're doing as i said before concentrics and heavy loads and staying away from failure then it's unlikely that we're going to need to go through a material amount of this fatigue resistance process in order to continue uh, kind of uh, functioning and training properly so it's it's a process that can and does occur and it is necessary in certain circumstances, but I don't think it's actually fair to say that it's necessary to cause hypertrophy. We don't have to go through this process to stimulate hypertrophy. We can do it without going through this process. Absolutely. And like I said, the, the I don't know how much we want to get into the repeated bout effect, but essentially when those protective mechanisms are put in place, the when you have a new exercise or you're, or you have like new trainers or new lifters or whatever, stuff like that. And they do the initial bouts of, especially the eccentric stuff that there's um, the protective mechanism and the repeat about is put in place. And it, I always thought you've been addressing this lately more in your infographics. And I think it's something that 
you thought of and then i was the past month sometimes you and i just end up arriving at these topics at the same time independently of one another and you it was the, basically the continued repeat about effect was something i felt like was clear in the research was that it it's yes it's significantly higher in the initial bout but then clearly i felt like there was protective mechanisms that continued to be um added as the lifter went on now the degree of it would be significantly smaller this is the magnitude of the protective effects from there on would go down but i don't think it just you did one bout of exercise and the body was like all right that's it there's all your protective mechanisms from here on out you don't get any more no i mean it is a fast process compared with many other adaptions i mean it has a very very uh, rapid uh, kind of onset i mean we do a couple of workouts we're seeing huge changes in this fatigue resistance and then it really does plateau after that um you know so it is front loaded very much so in terms of the kind of uh, magnitude of the adaptions that occur um but it does carry on um and it does seem to carry on for uh, you know um sort of maybe five or six workouts at least maybe a little bit longer but ultimately the magnitude of these fatigue resistance changes is going to be very very very, very uh, kind of a strongly affected by the type of training we're doing. We do see, um, you know, kind of uh, repeated bout effects essentially uh, being lost when we stop doing those kind of very fatiguing types of exercise. Um, you know, so ultimately, uh, if we're training in a very fatiguing way, we're going to create a larger fatigue resistance uh, kind of adaption. If we train in a much less fatiguing way, we're not going to create that much of a fatigue resistance adaption. So it is absolutely a fatigue resistance adaption that we're describing, and it is completely unrelated to the hypertrophy process 100 percent. this also leads us into now one of the things that happens and this was i can tell the, the people who start commenting who have who've actually paid attention through their college education or have actually gone out and read some stuff because they'll start hitting on some deeper stuff that they don't think that i've covered a million times and this was the next one okay so this was a on, this was i think the ongoing one that lasted the longest you know where i'm at on the bullet points here so the it was the satellite cell myonuclei myonuclear domain that one went on for a while that was the the muscle damage creates hypertrophy hypothesis they clung to for i think probably the longest that was the they're the last bastion of hope for muscle damage creates hypertrophy was the satellite cell to myonuclei to myonuclear domain that was the one yeah, it's almost like the more sciencey something sounds like, the more, <laughs> more hopeful it can kind of uh, be for, for a hypothesis. And ultimately, satellite cells sounds really sciencey, so it must be true. I think. <laughs> so, you know, that's. I, that, no, I'm laughing because that's what I used to think about this. I'm like, when you're failing, just make something sound super, super, super sciencey, like something almost out of like a, a Sandra Bullock movie that, right, that, or, or whatever. And somebody can go, this is so sciencey, we can't understand it. It has to be true. Yeah, it has I, to be I true. Satellite very, cells can explain everything from how muscle hypertrophy occurs to aliens landing. Like whatever is because it's satellite cells. So it's super confusing when it's actually, uh, if you go under, look at the mechanisms that happen, that one broke down pretty, pretty fast. Once somebody, once we actually started looking at the research, people started doing more research on the satellite cell stuff. And then about nuclei, about nuclear domain. That I think we could do a whole different podcast on the whole. Uh, that was the other one that came out. They finally go the myonuclear domain size thing, right? Like, well, I tell you what, let's just, let's, let's actually get into that topic now. So that was the thing: satellite cell muscle damage caused a, an abundance in satellite cell increases. And then what was going to happen here, according to that theory that was postulated, was that muscle damage caused a massive increase in satellite cell, which was basically an immune system response for the most part. To simplify this, and then the satellite cells would donate their nuclei to the myonuclei, 
And then as myonuclei increase, myonuclear domain increased, and then the potential for hypertrophy that could occur due to an increase in myonuclear domain. That was the one that was postulated, right? Yeah. So basically what we're saying is that in order to create a significant increase in the size of the muscle fiber, we have to obviously add more nuclei to that muscle fiber, you know, and that's, that's perfectly fair. I mean, that's, 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 that's not really hugely contentious. I mean, there's obviously going to be a little bit of variance in myonuclear domain sizes. Myonuclear domain just means the area of the muscle fiber that's controlled by a given number of nuclei. It's not anything more complicated than that. Uh, and so no, no, is, it's very, very complicated science. Myonuclear domain. Myonuclear yeah, domain. the domain just literally means uh, the area of the muscle fiber <laughs> being controlled by a nucleus. I mean, it's not, it's not hugely complicated. But ultimately, yeah, it does sound pretty science. So um, we're saying that we're basically having to add a nuclei into the muscle fiber in order to support the growth of that fiber. Yes, fine, no problem. That means we do need satellite cells for hypertrophy to a certain extent. The question is, you know, what else are the satellite cells doing? Well, they're obviously involved in the muscle damage repair process because they need to provide that material that the muscle fiber needs in order to repair itself. So, yeah, we're going to have the satellite cells performing two separate processes. We're going to have them providing some nuclei for the uh, muscle uh, uh, kind of hypertrophy process to support that and we're also going to be providing nuclei in order to oh and various other things in order to provide support for the muscle damage repair process so um yes we need them for both things but what we notice is that we can create a very strong satellite cell response anytime we create muscle damage even if there is no hypertrophy being stimulated whatsoever. And I think really that's been the most powerful source of, of data in kind of moving away from this hypothesis that a satellite cell activation always leads to hypertrophy because... Oh gosh, I was trying to think there's literally one, there's one that I think, and I'm drawing from remember, that looked at downhill running that created a tremendous amount of muscle damage with no hypertrophy. So the, the satellite cell uh a, a amount of satellite cell increase would be would, i think was like incredibly high if I, I think the right one but i think it was downhill running and they looked at and there was tons even, of even muscle damage normal, no hypertrophy even, right yeah even normal running creates a strong satellite cell response i mean any there's been a number of studies that have shown quite uh clearly that you can have you know strength training a long long way away from muscular failure so far away it doesn't cause any hypertrophy at all that causes a satellite cell response endurance running even on the flat creates a satellite cell response and ultimately i think there's some nice kind of mechanistic research that shows that it's probably actually the calcium act uh, kind of accumulation inside the muscle fibers uh, as a result of just simple muscle fiber activation, not necessarily leading to hypertrophy, just muscle activation causes a calcium influx. That is probably the stimulus for satellite cell activation in the in the first instance. The interesting thing is that we're basically saying that whether satellite cells get activated and start going through their cycles or not is completely unrelated to whether we actually end up creating hypertrophy, which is totally logical if you understand that myofibrillar kind of sort of splitting and then subsequent uh, kind of growth um, is the primary function of or the primary way in which hypertrophy happens. Everything else is a supporting factor, <laughs> you know, so creating more support doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get more hypertrophy. The signal uh, from the kind of um, mechanical tension that then tells the myofibril to do its thing is the kind of critical event. Everything else is like, well, if it happens, then we're here to support that. If it doesn't happen, then we'll go back into our kind of quiescent states again. So ultimately, I think the, the research showing that we can get um, reasonable satellite cell activations without any subsequent hypertrophy was pretty critical in kind of moving people away from this hypothesis yeah and 
again, the, the big thing there was that they latched on to after that was the fact that they they kind of postulated that the limitations in hypertrophy were based off the size of the myonuclear domain, right? So if we had more myonuclei, it could service more uh, myofibrils. If you could service more myofibrils, you increase your potential. So the whole thing was you run into a max potential for hypertrophy based on the fact that you had had a, had a a decrease or you didn't you couldn't grow that myonuclear domain. So it was then thought, and this was the other muscle damage part. It was then thought, okay, so then what you could do, and there were actually whole training ideologies that you know spawned out of this thought process was that if you detrained well here was the thing they thought you would keep your myonuclear domain size right and then if you detrained uh then you would lose you know the myofibrils the the uh the size of the myofibrils but then you would retain the size of the myonuclear domain and then when you would get basically retrained and start training again you had a more myonuclei to service a greater amount of myofibrils. That was that was one of the things that kind of spawned out of that. And I think I can't remember. I think it was a nuclear overload training was one of the ones that came out of that. And that was the thought process was to do this crazy amount of metabolic stress work, increase satellite cells, increase myonuclei, increase myonuclear domain, and then you would detrain over like a two weeks or three weeks after that. And it would say like, they would say stuff like this. Uh, and this was all tied in. And the reason why that I bring this up is because this was also stuff they were tying into the research that was going on at the time, the data that was going on at the time. And I think it was largely, it was either misrepresented or they simply misinterpreted it very, very poorly uh, or very good, very, very, they misinterpreted it very well. I don't know how you'd say that. So that was what they would say would say remember when you first started training and you were a newbie and you you grew by like tons and they were trying to recreate that whole like newbie gains thing and their idea connected to this idea of a, an increase in satellite cells an increase in myonuclei uh, an increase in myonuclear domain was that the myonuclear domain was retained the amount of myonuclei that you had and you've i don't know if you've heard this i'm sure that you have is that when you like do anabolic steroids is that you increase the the myonuclei by tons and then what happens is even if you come off steroids, you keep all that myonuclei and then you're still like benefit. You've heard this, right? Like you've heard this particular sure. theory. Sure, sure. So yeah. that was their theory with the satellite cell increase, the myonuclear, um, myonuclei to myonuclear domain increase was that that stuff was retained. We actually know that's not true now. It's like, and that didn't make sense to me at the time either. I'm like, but you lose all these adaptations when you, when you detrain, why would you keep that one? If the body doesn't need that extra myonuclei to essentially service the the uh, the myofibrils and the fibers, why would you keep it? So now we know they've actually looked at that since, and you do lose it when you detrain. But that was the theory then: was that the myonuclei increase, and then now your ceiling for hypertrophy was increased through that. So it was connected, somewhat connected into the muscle damage theory. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a lag. I mean, I think that probably, I think we probably do retain. Uh, our myonuclei a little bit longer. Um, we do, yes. It, we do retain the, it longer than you, you than keep the, the actual, themselves. Yes, one hundred percent. You do keep it longer, but over time, when there's enough detraining, you do lose it. it, it and that sure. was the case. Maybe they just didn't look at it long enough, but eventually they did look at it long enough. And they're like, oh, it does go. It just takes a little bit longer. 
Yeah, and I think ultimately, you know, that's that's kind of one of those areas that's 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 kind of interesting in 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 itself. But ultimately, um, I don't think it changes anything about the interpretation of the way satellite cells are working, because essentially, you know, the muscle damage hypothesis is trying to argue that if we create more muscle damage, we're going to create more satellite cell activity, and that satellite cell activity is then going to translate into greater hypertrophic potentials. And ultimately, the 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 line of logic that fails is that when we activate those satellite cells, they're not necessarily dumping, you know, myonuclear into the muscle fiber just because we've created some muscle damage. I mean, you know, they may or may not do. Um, if we need them in order to create uh, a repair process, then they'll be applied. But if they're not, then they won't. And so ultimately, it's it, people are misunderstanding the difference between supply and demand. You know, ultimately, if the muscle fiber is demanding something, then it will get it within reason. Um, but if we just simply say, oh, we're going to supply a load more of it. Well, if the muscle fiber doesn't need it, then it won't actually then make use of it. The the hypertrophic process is determined ultimately by myofibrillar splitting and, and, and kind of uh, growth. It's If it needs myonuclear, it will, it will get them from the satellite cells. But if it doesn't need them, it won't take them. Right. And so that was the one that followed up. And is what's funny is if you circle back around to where we started and see how these things go from starting at this one potential place to when that falls apart, the goalposts kind of get moved and they're like, well, maybe that's not it, but this it's this other thing. But as you said, if you if the if the initial parts of the muscle damage thing, if they just looked and said, okay. The processes that cause hypertrophy are just the splitting of the myofibrils and the growing of them from there, whereas the process of muscle damage is just repairing or um, putting in a, like literally building on a new myofibril in its place. So nothing really happens from a hypertrophy perspective. That kind of ends the whole conversation, but that didn't end it from there. It literally led us from the eccentric contractions versus concentric contractions all the way to the fact that, hey, there's a way to increase your potential if that that one also would just drove me crazy because I was like, well, if that were the case, we'd have guys that are like a thousand pounds of negative three percent body fat, and all they'd have to do is train for a while, increase the amount of myonuclei, detrain, get bigger, detrain, get bigger, detrain, get bigger, and that that was, I think, the thought process behind that nuclear overload training was to cause all of this muscle damage and metabolic stress, and then detrain, you retain the myonuclei. And the reason why I bring this up so much, because I've I gotten asked about this one so many times and that was it. But again, as you said, you're, you're not going to like see the amount, the threshold that you've got. I think that, what is it? It's like a 20, there's actually a 24%. You don't actually increase the amount of nuclear domain until like 24%. What's the, what's I the there's, figure? There's there? a lag thing. There's a lag going in both directions. That's yes. A really interesting thing. I mean, ultimately I think there's, there's going to be a lag in, in the kind of the, the growth process and be a lag in the detraining process. And I think that's, that's confusing things because it makes the literature a little bit mixed in terms of what we're looking at. So sometimes we see that, you know, uh, the number of myonuclei inside a muscle fiber, you know, doesn't really change very much for various uh, kind of uh, and then of we can like that, that's a really clear point i want to be clear so we see in the literature there's times where hypertrophy increases and the amount of nuclei myonuclei does not increase yeah so ultimately we'll get an increase in the size of the muscle fiber without changing the new number of myonuclei which means that myonuclear domain size is going to get 
slightly uh, uh, altered and then the same things can then happen um, in delay in, in terms of uh, detraining we might see a delay as the myonuclei are retained but the muscle fiber shrinks slightly and therefore again the myonuclear domain is going to change slightly and ultimately that's you know that just seems to be a lag going in both directions a lag when we're, when we're growing the muscle fiber and a lag when we're decreasing the size but ultimately you know the chances are that if we leave it long enough in a particular state then it will probably reset itself back to uh, an appropriate myonuclear domain size uh, but essentially, as I keep kind of uh, sort of saying, is that it doesn't really matter that much because the muscle fiber is either going to grow or it's not um, as a result of the myofibrillar addition process. And if it needs nuclei to do that, then it'll largely get them, except maybe in certain uh, kind of populations who maybe don't have the, the satellite cells to be able to support that. But generally speaking, we're not going to see that as a limitation, I don't think. Yeah, and that was that was, I think, the last piece in there. Um, for the muscle damage um, that believed to, that muscle damage was was the increase or potentiator or um, actually caused it directly. And that took, like I said, that took place. The reason why I brought the dates up is to help people understand that that literally took place over something like the period of like 91 to, I want to say 2015 even. It was particularly prevalent, I think, in the 2000s when people were really sort of leaning on the satellite cell data to try and make it uh, sort of support the muscle damage hypothesis. But ultimately, I think, you know, we've started to now move away from that. People are understanding that it's a muscle damage repair supporter primarily. Yes, it does have a role to play in, in um, facilitating um hypertrophy as we as we kind of uh, kind of continue but ultimately and maybe it could limit hypertrophy in certain circumstances absolutely i'm not denying that um but i don't think it's involved primarily as a normal uh, course and fundamentally what i'm saying here is that if you try and artificially create a lot more satellite selectivation by causing muscle damage that isn't doing anything absolutely not that's just basically giving the satellite cells another job to do it's not actually going to create a bigger influx of myonuclei into the muscle fiber to support extra hypertrophy that's not how it works absolutely okay so then the the kind of the next layering here was the novel reasons uh, for muscle damage hypothesis. So the one is our favorite topic is stretch position exercises. So stretch position exercises, that was, again, this is one of those, and I'm just going to take a shot in the dark at where you're going with this, is that when we had stretch position, <laughs> you're laughing, we've had stretch position exercises done for certain muscles. I always like to say this there's clearly certain muscles that do grow better at longer lengths and there's certain ones that not we haven't we did a two and a half hour podcast on that uh for anybody who hasn't gone back and listened to that they need to go back and listen to our stretch mediated hypertrophy podcast but that was us uh, the stretch position exercises was also postulated at one time because some muscles do grow better at longer lengths that that potentially that the stretch position, because it caused more muscle damage, that that was also something that was going to had an additive effect to hypertrophy as well. Is that where you're going with that that one? Yeah, I just actually um, wanted to use this as an interesting opportunity to kind of give people a window into how exercise science changes over time, because most people now who are coming to the industry and they've perhaps been you know interested in this area for a couple of years they've kind of walked into a scenario where everybody talks about stretched position exercises as if everyone else knows what they are 
And they, they kind of refer to this idea of, of stretch mediated hypertrophy. They talk about, you know, stretch positions being the primary uh, determinant of uh, kind of why a full range of motion exercise might cause more hypertrophy than a partial range of motion exercise, for example. But people aren't saying at the moment, at least, that the range of motion itself is critical. But if you go back five, 10 years, then we were living in an environment where people used to believe believe it or not people used to believe that the range of motion itself was a critical determinant to hypertrophy and if we used a smaller range of motion even if that small range of motion occurred in a stretch position then that wasn't going to stimulate as much hypertrophy as a full range of motion i lived through those times you know i'm old <laughs> enough to remember that and yeah it sounds absolutely ridiculous now and it just really you know in order to understand uh, how this, you know, was really kind of um, occurring, we have to go back and say, well, you know, <laughs> when we first started to see these studies coming out that showed great hypertrophy after partial ranges of motion, but partial ranges of motion in stretch positions, you know, people absolutely lost it. And they were trying to come up with all kinds of reasons why it might be, rather than looking at the physiology and understanding how, you know, kind of passive tension works. People started suggesting that muscle damage was causing that additional hypertrophy. So they were saying things like, even though it's a partial range of motion, you know, which we shouldn't expect to cause my hypertrophy because it's a partial range of motion and that can't possibly do anything. I don't know why they thought that, but they did. You know, it's because it's in a stretch position that it's causing more muscle damage and that muscle damage is then causing more hypertrophy. And that was literally the thought process that was going or being presented. You know, and ultimately we now know that it's got nothing to do with range of motion. It's got nothing to do with muscle damage. It's just very simply that when we train in a stretch position, we create more passive tension and that passive tension potentially then has the capability of stimulating more hypertrophy. So that's what I wanted to do here was just give people a window into the fact that, you know, exercise science changes over time. And what you might think is totally normal right now, you know, is not going to be considered totally normal in five or 10 years in terms of an understanding of how these things work, at least not how it's. I was, I was laughing as you were going through that. I don't, because in my mind, because we go over neuromechanical matching so much, right. I, in my mind, as you were going through that and thinking, about researchers not kind of understanding any of these concepts or principles that the only way most can just these big ranges of motion right and the, that muscle is only doing legitimate work or gets uh, you know mechanically loaded very well in this giant range of motion this huge range of motion and then I, and in my head i'm thinking so is it is it working through that entire range is it the prime mover so that that the entire gigantic large range of motion there's no handoff mechanism from something else as as uh, leverages change through the through the range of motion so it's like if you do like you know like the pullover machine you got the arms behind your head all the way over from like you know 100 plus 80 degrees of flexion pulling all the way through it's like the lats are just working through that whole giant range of motion but if you actually just trained them in a like the mid-range range of motion where they have all the leverage that's where you would have seen the hypertrophy occur and they would have been like oh well like that doesn't make any sense yeah genuinely we can do kind of like an archaeological process here in terms of exercise science we can literally go back and look at what people thought and and it's absolutely fascinating to me that if you go back far enough in the literature you will literally find people in in the literature even the exercise science literature talking about the importance of actual range of motion believing that somehow range of motion has an effect in and of itself independent of either you know kind of where that range of motion is for example in terms of either as you were saying neuromechanical match or you know the stretched positions creating more passive tension there was no mechanistic explanation of how this range of motion would magically be better than a shorter range of motion it just was accepted i could still get into a myriad of 
of quote unquote evidence based stuff that still just looks at the outcomes and doesn't even make an attempt to get into the mechanism. But we will do that. We don't do that here. Um, but the just looks at the outcomes and doesn't even try to understand the mechanisms and that the mechanisms are what piece all of some people will say you don't need to understand that stuff just push just push pull and squat heavy legs and you'll grow all the big muscles you want i'm like if for those of us who actually want to understand the mechanism the mechanisms to me are far more important than just understanding some outcome in the abstract so it's like what if you send me something or I send you something, the first thing we always do is get right into actual study. Read what do they do here? And then it's pretty easy to figure out, okay, well, this mechanistically, that's why I sent you one the other week. And I said, I don't have this one. I can't even get it. And you're like, well, you know what they did here is they did X, Y, Z. I was like, oh, okay. We don't even have to continue the conversation from there. It's, it's pretty funny. But the um, the range of motion stuff went on. That was another one, like you said, that went on for uh, a long time and the when you were bringing that up the thing i was thinking about how the archaeological archaeological dig would also be uh, and not to sidetrack us but this is just what i thought of when you were bringing that up was how they used to think that fatigue was also a stimulus for muscle growth and we're not going to get off into it. we're not going to get off into it but it was it was a, there was a study that literally said they determined that there was more neurological fatigue doing it was, uh, I think it was, it was the antagonistic supersetting and said that it caused, there was more fatigue because there was a reduction in performance. And, um, and they said, so it's a better, better, better principle to use for hypertrophy. That's in the actual abstract. So the one that caused more fatigue was considered better at the time that remember the time there was the years where it's like fatigue was considered a potential mediator for hypertrophy. And then now we know it's, it's, it's literally the biggest, potentially the biggest detriment um, was any of the fatigue mechanisms that we occur. So it's like you said, we do the archeological dig, how far we end up coming removed from some of this stuff in actually a short period of time over the last, as it's become far more popular, there's uh, been way more research, I think that has shed light on this stuff in the last decade than there was in probably the 30 or 40 years before that. So uh, the second one, after the longer, they, how they couldn't explain the particular ranges of motion was muscle swelling and edema. And that, like, I don't know where you wanted to go with this one particularly. So just tell people, that's why I tell people we don't talk about all these. Where, what was the muscle swelling one? And then as you start talking, I'll probably, oh, go, okay. So basically we mentioned muscle swelling last time in the context of the workout itself so in the workout itself um, you know workouts that involve more metabolite accumulation generally cause more muscle swelling and that uh, kind of led to this idea that maybe metabolic stress is uh, creating a, a hypertrophic stimulus by essentially causing muscle fibers to swell which then produces a kind of pressure effect on that fiber and that pressure might be uh, experienced in a similar way to the mechanical tension that in, in, layman, in layman terms we're, we're back to talking about the pump so for people, yeah, listen, so we're, we're essentially talking about the pump. In that context, we were talking about the pump. Now, basically, we also see a muscle swelling effect after muscle damaging workouts. Yep. And it's a delayed effect, and it tends to occur, you know, quite a long time after the workout itself. And ultimately... Um, you know, that was also regarded as a potential mechanism for hypertrophy because 
the exact same reasons as we talked about in the context of metabolic stress. Potentially the fibrous wells, pressure is experienced. That pressure could be regarded as similar to um, mechanical tension that we know stimulates hypertrophy. Therefore, uh, you know, this swelling post-workout could be a, a mechanism by which uh, muscle damage would then stimulate hypertrophy. So it's kind of like taking a as, step. As, as you just walk. talked all that out, the Pacific Rim meme came to my mind. It's like, it's like so you get to, if you know this is, the mechanism for hypertrophy, any way you can tie that in, that was the one I thought of. So if you can tie somehow the mechanoreceptors in detecting that swelling, then you get hypertrophy and then the pump works and then the swelling afterwards works. And I've consistently said, I think that people who go to higher reps and say they, they think they're seeing muscle growth are probably seeing nothing but inflammation and some uh, edema after those training bouts that they were not getting before. And anecdotally, I've seen that throughout all my groups. Absolutely. And the really interesting thing that I think we can uh, refer to that immediately discounts this possibility is that the swelling can be super, super delayed. So, you know, there's some really nice data showing that, you know, if you look at the time course of the fatigue and the kind of swelling process, you can get swelling occurring like a week after exercise. I mean, it really can be that long. And so yep. ultimately, you know, are we are we really entertaining the possibility that we do a strength training workout and we create some hypertrophy and then a week later, the muscle fibers start swelling and somehow that is then stimulating hypertrophy a week after the workout. I don't think many people are going to take that seriously. It's too delayed. We don't get elevations in myofibroprotein synthesis a week after a workout in order to produce, you know, kind of hypertrophy as a result of a swelling event you know that that isn't really what we're tending to see occurring in the hypertrophy that would be so, that would be really cool it's if you could do a workout on monday and then get some some hypertrophy stimulus from it like friday like the friday coming friday by doing nothing but just experiencing the swelling from it that'd be that'd be cool just as a sense check you know with, with this just makes literally no logic i can actually whatsoever. give you a really really great for people listening a really great real world example of this and that is for prep coaches when i talk about prep coaches bodybuilding coaches who work with people one of the things some of the smart the smarter ones do is they have them stop working legs anywhere from 10 to 14 days out from the show so one of the common problems with a lot of bodybuilders going into shows is they would get very lean but they would say, my legs didn't come in. I would hear this all the time. My legs didn't come in. And what they mean by their legs not coming in is they wouldn't have that deep separation and those deep cuts that they needed to look really shredded. Now, these would be people where they would have no fat on their lower back, the Christmas tree lower back. You could see the, the separation in their lats and their spinae erectors. You know, I mean, I'm you're talking about people that you know are in low single-digit body fat, but their legs would sometimes be relatively smooth this was a, not even an uncommon problem this was a very common problem so the more that i worked with competitors the more i would have them stop doing leg training further away from a show and it fixed that problem all by itself so they would just not do leg training for the last 10 to 14 days leading it to a show and i consistently found one of the uh the competitors that i work with fred smalls we figured out he had to stop training legs about 20 days, 20 to 21 days out from a show. And then his legs would come in very separated and very hard. And I think clearly all that's happening there is all of that inflammation is getting cleared out because you got to remember, they would still be doing stuff like posing, contracting their quads, contracting their hamstrings. That's still going on. So I would still have him 
do that some of that stuff a little bit but we would try to be mindful of that and when he changed that his legs started coming in and the further off from the show that we would back that stuff up the more his legs would come in so there's clearly i think like a a very real world practical application where you can see that occurring of that muscle swelling and edema and that's why when i've had other coaches like well when i switched this guy over to doing high reps for legs i saw his legs really respond i'm like yeah that's not what really happened so yeah, that people I don't think, realize just how delayed the effect is and how sustained it is. It really does hang around for quite a long time. Exactly. I think much longer than people think. So that was the the pump and the muscle swelling and the edema. They've tried to multiple. We really covered that one in the metabolic stress one a lot. And they've tried to connect that one multiple times too. And I think what they, like you said, they tried to do there is to at least get that into, tie that into a way where we're talking about something detecting tension and they use pressure there. Well, there's a swelling, so there must be pressure with the pump. There has to be pressure or if there's, there's swelling and edema, there has to be pressure. So, but I, that's kind of, like you said, for the swelling one that week later, I think that's a common sense one that I, I can't imagine could, I don't know why that would ever gain any traction. Well, yeah, absolutely. And ultimately I think the fact that it's so dislocated from the workout itself really just takes any credibility away from it. I mean, nobody's going to be expecting to see a hypertrophic stimulus a week after a workout. You know, it's, it doesn't make any sense at all. So now, oh, let's see here. Oh, of course, as usual, we have to get into uh, our favorite, uh, the Stu Phillips and DeMoss research. So, that has to me and this is and i always say this i understand the concept of we need more research we need more research we need more research i also feel like there's a time where we investigate something that specifically and do it really well where we can kind of get an idea i that either that either is something or is not something i'm speaking in really strange arbitrary terms. But what I mean by that is when the DeMoss research came out and looked specifically at myofibril protein synthesis, muscle damage, and then hypertrophy, I felt like they were looking at what that those mechanisms very specifically in the research. And in that research, they were definitively, definitively able to look at the fact that we had this increase. We talked about, and this fits in really well, right, modeling-wise. Initially, when there's the bout of muscle damage, we see this increase in, in myo, uh, myofibril protein synthesis and mixed muscle protein synthesis. It all goes up, but there's not an increase in hypertrophy. And they looked at it. How long was that one particular study where they looked at that one? That very specifically, I can't remember the length of time, but I do remember over the course, it took about four weeks before the amount okay it was 10 weeks so the, but it was for the first four weeks they saw almost nothing they saw it was like this kind of this nice little graph start up really high and then it comes down over like four weeks and that ties in really well with what we we're talking earlier about the repeated bout effect and protective mechanisms that kind of happen very early they're really significant the magnitude of them is very high early on in training and then they kind of they dissipate after that but then they kind of trickle in terms of you know, like the amount of protective mechanisms that are occurring. So they're still occurring. They're just the magnitude is much smaller. But then after that, there was, that was when the increases in hypertrophy really started occurring. So I felt like when you just look at that research, it was very clear that if 
what we would expect to see are micro tears and muscle damage and all that kind of stuff was creating hypertrophy or as an additive effect, you would have seen the greatest amount of hypertrophy occurring when the damage was occurring the most early in the research. It's literally flip-flop. It was the opposite. When the damage came down, then we saw the hypertrophy occurring in much greater amounts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a great, a great body of work that was done uh, by that uh, by that lab in that time. I mean, ultimately, you know, we're seeing situations where muscle protein synthesis rates are elevated when muscle damage is, is is highest, which is exactly what we've been saying. There's a process that requires that elevation in muscle protein synthesis in order to, you know, fix uh, kind of elements of the fiber that have been damaged. Yeah, but ultimately it doesn't translate into greater hypertrophy. Um, and ultimately, if we correct the elevations in muscle protein synthesis for the damage uh, element, or if they correct that, um, then ultimately we can see there is a correlation, you know, between the uh, kind of um, sort of uh, kind of uh, post-workout uh, muscle protein synthesis rates and, um, and and the resulting kind of hypertrophy. So, uh, you know, there's, there's some really, really great work being done just to try and differentiate the muscle protein synthesis rate elevations that are going towards hypertrophy and the muscle protein synthesis rate elevations that are going towards damage. And I think, you know, that work was really critical in changing people's perceptions, at least in exercise science uh, kind of uh, to, uh, fields, not so much necessarily in teaching areas, but much more <laughs> certainly in the academic areas. People have moved away, therefore, from the idea that muscle damage is a stimulus for hypertrophy, largely based on this literature. But as we've walked through these areas, as we've been going through the podcast, ultimately, you know, the, the, there was never really grounds for supposing that the muscle damage was stimulating hypertrophy in the first place, but because of the misinterpretations that were being made. But I think this research was critical in kind of moving people's perceptions away from that uh, that hypothesis anyway. So that's why we wanted to include that as, a, as, a, as, an, as an item. And I, I think that the, the Felipe DeMoss research that we're talking about here, I think that was really kind of a pivotal point where this started really changing, right? Where it really people started going, okay, we, there's really nothing we can, at this point that we can hang our hats on as far as like the whole micro tears, muscle damage causes hypertrophy stuff. I feel like Felipe, the Felipe DeMoss research really kind of, I don't know if you say put the nail in the coffin, but it was a pretty massive point in changing most of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think really it's it's been the kind of point where people have now started to to sort of really backtrack on on you know fundamentally the the uh, the, the muscle damage uh, as a stimulus by hypertrophy idea, and that is I think very but it's as you've been saying earlier, it's very slowly filtering down into the rest of the fitness industry whether that's teaching side of things or whether that's you know just sort of uh, people talking about it on the internet but everybody still i think has this understanding or belief that you know muscle damage is a stimulus in some way shape or form whether it's in the formal way that we've described it as a, as a hypothesis or whether it's simply because they think that's the instigating event for a muscle fiber to add myofibrils in parallel which of course it's not um, but i think either of those two routes get people to more or less the same point which is still a, a misunderstanding in both cases yeah and as i was telling you before we actually started the podcast today was that uh, i've been playing with chat gpt and uh going on there and asking it what causes hypertrophy and then when it corrects itself on muscle damage it will keep circling back to reactive oxygen species ross which is something we addressed in the metabolic uh stress podcast but they've started moving the goalpost to that both in terms of metabolic stress and and muscle damage and trying to tie it back in it's just so funny how how much it keeps moving and how like there's this huge segment of kind of like scientific 
community who will not, it's like they just will not give up on specific ideas and they'll just keep trying to grasp onto stuff rather than just saying, this is a pretty dead idea. Let's move on to something else or just, you know, explore another area. But now it's become the reactive oxygen species. And again, that's going to tie back into the whole inflammatory process that's both needed, um, that, that both causes damage, and but is also both needed for those protective adaptations. All this stuff, I don't, so while they're bringing this up, I don't really know. I also thought this was, when I brought it up to you, you seemed a bit puzzled because you're like, I, I feel like that this has already been addressed. And I'm like, I'm telling you, it's making the rounds. And so when I went on chat GBT, it kept, it would say I was right about all of this stuff. And then it would cut, circle back to uh, to Ross and say, but Ross is a mediator. I'm like, no, it's not. And it would keep going back. So I, this is something I think that has been brought up new in the past month why we brought it up in the Metabolic Stress Podcast was that now that's what they're hanging their hat on. So I, the only reason I'm bringing that up and we don't have to expound on that more is because for anybody listening, just, just be on the lookout to know that's going to be the next one probably coming down the road is going to say reactive oxygen species. And it ties in with every, it is simply part of the those processes that in which we've already covered with both metabolic stress and muscle damage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, reactor oxygen species fairly uh, uh, kind of integral in producing damage of various kinds inside a muscle fiber, and that's going to lead to an anabolic signaling response to repair that damage. So again, producing exercise with more reactor oxygen species or oxidative stress is going to produce more damage, and that's going to lead to more uh, kind of repair required. And all of that is just going to be then linked with the inflammatory response post-workout. So uh, the, the kind of the the, the kind of you can see the same logic being applied incorrectly which is that if we see a greater anabolic signaling process it must mean more hypertrophy well no it just means that we're repairing something that's been damaged uh, and i think that again i think is just uh, just a modified version of the previous hypothesis uh, but ultimately still suffers from exactly the same misunderstanding and so i think what people should get out of coming this far into the podcast with us is that um well first off Number one, I think that having some misunderstandings early on when people saw the increase in, you know, myofibroprotein synthesis and mixed protein synthesis, I think it was perfectly under understandable at those initial points, like a couple of decades ago, to say, hey, maybe this causes hypertrophy because we see this happening. But for people who are listening, what we're really trying to differentiate here is the difference between we have anabolic signaling that can occur that does nothing to increase hypertrophy, and we have anabolic signaling that can occur that does. And those, once that anabolic signaling gets kicked off, and we're talking about myops or mixed muscle protein synthesis, once that happens, you just have to understand that there can be some different processes and mechanisms that occur due to that. So we can either have repair and regeneration, or we can have the addition and the addition happens through the splitting of myofibrils. So these are just very different mechanistically. They're just different processes that occur, even though the antibiotic signaling gets kicked off and i think the thing that people should take away from that is just because anabolic signaling happened doesn't mean muscle growth is going to occur absolutely i think you know this is this is just the point that we keep circling back to all the time is that um you know there are two totally separate processes that share some of the same features but ultimately the the kind of defining characteristic of each process is so different that they're not really capable of you know, kind of uh, sort of cross-contaminating each other to the degree that most people think they are. You know, ultimately, yes, they do share an anabolic signaling process. They do share elevations in myofibrillar protein synthesis. But ultimately, the demand that is driving those 
those two things uh, in each case is completely different. So it's just this over-focus, I think, on the supply rather than understanding where the demand is actually going from. It's demand that's driving the uh, kind of the adaption that we're interested in. 100%. And so now, into our, leads us into our last segment, which was how, how does damage actually happen? <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, this is this is going to come i think as a big big surprise to most people listening to this podcast uh, with the exception of people who've maybe come through my mentorship program but basically the idea that muscle uh, fibers are damaged because of mechanical tension is is probably one of the biggest myths in the okay in the 100 that is okay yes 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 before we even get into the little bullet points you got here, I, I think we need to at least high level overview that because that was that's the one. Now that people understand mechanical tension, they will often repeat that and say that mechanical tension causes. You've heard that. I didn't can see you nodding, so you I know you've already heard that a bunch. So they will say mechanical tension is a catalyst for muscle damage, right? That's that's what you've heard. You've heard that too. Yeah, and it's absolutely not true. Right. So people will say if there's mechanical, mechan this is their, the other tie-in, mechanical tension causes muscle damage, muscle damage causes, that's the tie-in again. So we can have mechanical tension again, coming back and have very, either very little or almost no muscle damage occurring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, you know, the mechanism that causes uh, my uh, fibrillar damage, the mechanism that causes muscle fiber damage is completely different from what most people think it is. And there's a number of really important pieces of literature that can that can show us this very clearly. And, but unfortunately, the idea that muscle fibers are torn uh, during, you know, very high force eccentric contractions is so sticky. It's such an amazing marketing idea, you know, that most people just kind of just accept it without really thinking too much about it. But as I say, there are these four areas of of the scientific literature which completely and utterly i'm going to use the word disprove here because you know i think that extreme we are in terms of the process you know they really do disprove the idea that mechanical tension is is the primary driver of, of muscle damage it, it's actually not you know and i think if you just run through these four areas very quickly and uh, just to illustrate the, the point but basically if we start out with the simplest possible uh, set of studies the ones that have literally just said can we create muscle damage? And I'm not talking about post-workout fatigue here. I'm actually talking about muscle damage as measured by something like a light microscope or an electron microscope. You know, can we actually create muscle damage after a concentric contraction? Because if we can, then we've fundamentally, you know, sort of uh, shown that the process of mechanical tension pulling muscle fibers apart is, is not really a contributor to uh, muscle damage because only eccentric contractions are actually stretching muscle fibers while they're actually producing force. If the muscle fiber is producing a concentric contraction, it's getting shorter. It's uh, basically condensing inside itself. That is not going to produce any kind of damage in terms of tension related damage because we're not uh you know kind of and most far is not going to pull itself to pieces we've got to apply that force in an eccentric contraction so uh, concentric contractions absolutely can cause muscle damage and the fact that they do that is, is essentially i think very very solid evidence that um you know we're not creating uh, muscle damage through a mechanical tension based process Second uh, set of literature uh, that is really, really important is the studies that have actually done uh, measurements of this uh, damage at different points post-workout. So they'll do an eccentric training workout and then they'll take some measurements, uh, say maybe immediately post-workout, then 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, whatever it may be. And when we look at those studies, we see that there isn't actually a very much uh, damage in the uh, 
measurement taken immediately post-workout, which is, you know, completely, again, showing us that there is no possibility that mechanical tension is causing that damage. Because if mechanical tension causes the damage, then we should see it immediately as it happens. That's what mechanical processes do. You know, whereas if we're seeing the damage occurring steadily over the following 24, 48, 72 hours, clearly that is involving a separate biochemical process which as we've said earlier is is the infl inflammatory process so ultimately you know the damage is not happening immediately post-workout or in the workout itself it's a post-workout repair and damage I, I did, again this is something i don't want people to gloss over is because when we talk about muscle muscle damage and that's when we're speaking in that specific terms it's not something that we see happen immediately within the workout it's something that we see happen many hours after the training session itself this is a really important piece and there's so many studies showing this they just go on and on and on and on and they're all showing exactly the same thing um you know if we actually look at you know scans of muscle fibers you know in the post-workout period they see the damage getting worse and worse and worse over the subsequent days it's not a process that happens in the workout itself yes there is a ton of fatigue that happens in the workout itself those fatigue mechanisms are separate um, they are caused uh, essentially by very similar mechanisms but ultimately not what we're talking about here which is the actual uh, kind of wholesale muscle damage inside the fiber damage is clearly occurring in the post-workout period and as i say connected to the inflammatory response that's a really nice setup for your bullet points that's yeah, a really nice i see where you went with next. that i see what you did because that's a really nice setup for your bullet points so again i i want to reiterate this one more time before we get to your bullet points because that was that's a really like i said it's a nice setup for your bullet points that if mechanical tension was the catalyst for muscle damage you would see it occurring either within the workout or immediately post-workout due to the fact that mechanical tension happened within that training session but we don't that if somebody does not get this particular concept they're just not going to get it so we see it happen hours and hours and hours later which means there has to be a mechanism another mechanism that actually causes that to happen or a series of mechanisms once that particular stimulus happens so if, if mechanical tension if the quote-unquote tearing of muscle fibers or tear micro tears or whatever then what we would see is this is the best way I can put what we would see is when we look at those microscopically we would see those right when the workout happens we would see those micro tears for that day we that's not what we see we see it happen hours and hours and hours later absolutely um you know and i think just just to kind of um do my own forestalling of of, of of arguments coming in the opposite direction um when often when i mention to these people they say oh well so it's not muscle damage that's happening it's remodeling i'm like no it's definitely muscle damage that's happening. And the reason that it's definitely muscle damage happening is because we see a loss of myofibrils. If it was remodeling that was happening, we wouldn't see a massive loss of myofibrils happening in the post-workout period. It would be, you know, they'd be moved around, they'd be changed, they'd be altered. There wouldn't be massive losses of myofibrils. There are, in fact, massive losses of myofibrils in that post-workout period. And it does contribute to uh, another kind of delayed post-workout fatigue effect. Uh, and it is, as I'm, you know, kind of going on to say is my third bullet point, as you point out is related to the inflammatory process because if we remove that inflammatory process artificially however we may do that in the in the context of an animal model study for example then we see a more rapid reduction of fatigue because we're not getting that additional myofibril loss which is obviously impairing force production by uh, giving, uh, reducing the number of cross bridges we can form now whether or not that's a good idea is a totally separate question i'm not really going to talk about it here but ultimately just in the context <laughs> of that that particular scenario 
you know, in an animal model study, if we apply that particular intervention and we remove the inflammatory process, stop it from creating damage, uh, we clearly reduce the amount of fatigue and the amount of damage that's happening. So uh, essentially, very, very clear connection between the inflammatory process in the post-workout period and the damage that is happening. So again, what we're showing here is that the damage is not being caused by mechanical tension and we've got an alternative, which is the inflammatory process. No, it's not remodeling. Before somebody tells me it's remodeling, it's not remodeling. Yes, there will be a remodeling process, but this is not describing remodeling. Uh, we're talking about the loss of myofibrils. Okay, so for people who confuse the remodeling to loss of myofibrils to the addition uh, of myofibrils, we've kind of covered the addition of myofibrils through the the, the lateral splitting of, of myofibrils and creating the daughter myofibril and then those growing and becoming larger. Um, if somebody can envision that, almost think of like having a, uh, the way I like to think of it is like having a uh, spaghetti strain, and then you split the spaghetti strain, and there's two uh, spaghetti strains, and they're both small now, but then they grow back to the size of the original spaghetti strain, and then those get split, and then they're smaller, and then they grow. That's the way I kind of envision is like this kind of circular thing myofibrils are circular and then there's a split and you have the daughter but they're now smaller because you split that one in half and then they grow back bigger that's hypertrophy that's what we think of when we think have, have muscle growth not not scar tissue <laughs> yeah i mean best not to even go there really but, so yeah. okay so then when we get to muscle damage and we have an actual loss in myofibrils that's yeah, that's the critical defining feature of muscle damage. We're actually losing myofibrils. They're being taken away and then replaced. So it's interesting because when you look at the microscopic stuff and you go on there, it's like this messy area. It goes from being this kind of these lines where you can see the sarcomeres and the myofibrils and everything to this kind of like almost looks like it got blurred out, right? Like in the microscopic images, they look almost like blurry where the damage has occurred. Yeah, because we often just simplify things and talk about losses of myofibrils, but we're actually losing a big chunk of our intermediate filament system, which is holding those myofibrils in place. We're potentially losing chunks of the cytoskeleton, titan, whatever it may be. So we're losing a lot of stuff, and that leads to this kind of disorganization that we tend to observe. So, yeah, absolutely, there's going to be this kind of disorganization that occurs. But, you know, ultimately, I think the defining feature of a muscle damage process is we see the loss of actual proteins, which is counter to what we would want if we were trying to generate either hypertrophy or remodeling now remodeling is an interesting one because i think it's a very very vague term which isn't very very clear but i think ultimately it's probably related to sarcomeridogenesis you know where we're trying to add new uh, new sarcomeres in series i think we're going to get a fundamental remodeling effect um, but there is then obviously that uh, vague line of where does where does kind of muscle damage leading to disorganization end and where does sarcomeriogenesis begin? Well, that's a really, really interesting conversation. I'm not sure we're anywhere near being able to answer that clearly at the moment. But I think that's why I think focusing on loss of proteins is critical for understanding the defining feature of, of a muscle damage process. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is, is that I, I think it's, yes, there's a my remodeling perspective, but I think if you're talking remodeling, it, it looks very different than what you're talking about in terms of loss of functional proteins within the cell. Like those are, I think those are, would be two very different, completely different processes. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think we're missing massive losses of myofibrils. That's a damage process. Um, and I think it can't really be argued to be a remodeling process because it, make, it makes literally no sense for it to do that. Um, and so ultimately, you know, what we're saying here is that inflammatory process is the driving force behind um, the uh, kind of uh, the myofibrillar and cytoskeletal damage that we tend to see in the post-workout period. And, you know, that that then provides us with the answer we've been looking for because we've just walked through the processes and we've said, you know, damage is not happening. Uh, due to mechanical tension because we've got concentric contractions creating the damage it's definitely not uh, you know being created in the workout itself so again it really can't be mechanical tension so what is it uh, it's the inflammatory process that's the thing that's driving the majority of that damage in that post-workout period and that gives us the answer we've been looking for having left behind the idea that it is being generated by the forces inside the muscle fibers during contractions Okay. So that sets, like I said, that set all of that up really nicely for the, for your, for your little bullet, for the bullet points right here. So the muscle damage, we say, well, how, how does the muscle damage actually occur? Cause we kind of really haven't gotten into that. And I think that anybody that has gone through your mentorship courses or any of our webinars or listen to our stuff, probably going to get bored at some point with the fact that we can kind of narrow this back to most of this stuff has a bottleneck. I uh, use that last time, and I really like that as the term, is a bottleneck of any time we trace something back far enough, there's almost always just a couple of mechanisms that are involved in these processes. And I think that's the part that should simplify this for a lot of, a lot of people. If they begin to understand them, there's there's a bottleneck. And in that bottleneck, we're always going to find this one uh, evil villain, and that's <laughs> going to be calcium ions. And the calcium ions... Uh, so are sort of an evil villain in the fatigue mechanism process. So when it comes to muscle damage, he's our main villain in the process. Yeah, absolutely. And as as you said, I bring really well illustrated by the final body of literature which is uh, you know kind of really critical for pushing us away from mechanical tension as a driver of, of damage and towards calcium ion accumulation as a driver of damage i mean there's a ton of literature showing that calcium ion accumulation causes damage but this is the one that kind of just sort of uh, pivots us between uh, the two possibilities uh, basically, it's a really nice couple of studies that looked at different durations of maximal uh, isometric contractions. And essentially, the, the fascinating thing is that the amount of post-workout fatigue, which is kind of loosely uh, related to, to, to muscle damage, um, is very closely related to the duration of the contraction. So we go from one minute contractions to five minutes and 10 minutes and 15 minutes and so on and so on. The amount of uh, post-workout fatigue scales pretty nicely with those uh, contraction durations. But in the context of maximal uh, isometric injections, you get really big drops in the amount of force that the muscle fibers are producing as you progress from the one minute to the two minute to the five minute to the 10 minute and so on. And so ultimately, we're increasing the amount of fatigue we're generating with these longer duration contractions. But like 90% of the contraction is operating at 5% of maximal force. <laughs> so it's like we're creating this massive amount of post-workout fatigue and damage with basically minimal. Basically minimal amount of force going on. And it's like, well, yes. where's the tearing happening if we're right? If, the, if we're operating at this tiny amount of force production, and then but do we have this massive amount of damage that's occurring? Then how is that happening? It literally doesn't make any sense. And so, obviously, we've got another factor which is driving the post-workout uh, fatigue response. And it's basically, if you watch, calcium ion accumulation scales with increasing duration of contraction. And so, uh, basically, the more calcium ions we accumulate in the fiber. Um, 
ultimately, the more damage we're going to create because calcium accumulation stimulates protease production. Protease is obviously enzymes that attack proteins and, um, you know, the largely calpanes in this particular case. And those proteases will just damage the proteins inside the muscle fiber. It's a biochemical process. Now, that's the initial stage of the process, and it's not massive because, you know, in, in the ends of fatigue and contractions and, uh, you know, after the workout to a certain extent. But ultimately, it's a minor element of damage. The real element of damage is then the inflammatory process that is stimulated by that initial uh, minor damage process. We're creating some damage with those calpanes, those enzymes are damaging the, the fibers, but the real damage is then created by the inflammatory process post-workout. So, uh, you know, two-phase process, but ultimately, as you were saying, all traces back to calcium accumulation, which traces back to muscle activation. So the longer we activate the muscle fibers for, the more of this damage we're going to create, which is literally exactly what these studies are showing when longer durations of, of contractions, more so and more calcium accumulation. Now, what's cool is um, as you go back and you actually, what's, as you just said, we have this math amount of literature what's cool is you can actually go back through the calcium ion accumulation and the literature has been there for a long time this is actually this is but they just never tied it in so you anybody that wants to take that deep dive into calcium ion related fatigue we it goes back for a long ways and when you understand that what like we talked about that bottleneck and you go back through the literature it seems really obvious looking at it going back like 20 years you're like it's been here this whole time there's uh there's tons and some people will say well this is done and i know you've heard this this was done on rodents or birds or whatever and i understand that that there's sometimes differences that we see that when they train when they try to go over and test this on people but this is a particular one that has that has turned out the same way across all the literature so but you can go back through and look at all the calcium ion literature that is related to low frequency fatigue and muscle damage and all this kind of stuff and calpanes and approach uh, a functional protein degradation and everything to do with that and it goes back forever and it's consi very consistent across all the literature it's kind of cool because once you understand that and you go look you go well this literature has been there the whole time but you had to learn to tie that in somehow yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just uh, an incredibly dense, uh, full body of literature with with tremendous amount of detail, but as you say, very, very consistent findings and provides perfect explanation of everything that we're talking about. I mean, like people say, well, okay, well, so how are eccentric contractions producing more muscle damage? How does that relate to the calcium ion accumulation idea that you're presenting? Like very easily because calcium ion accumulation happens more rap uh, rapidly when we open stretch activated ion channels, which are obviously opened when we uh, activate the muscle fiber and stretch it. Extracellular calcium ions come in from outside the muscle fiber and cause a massive amount of calcium ion accumulation really quickly. And that then causes a much faster damage uh, process. So eccentric contractions fit the uh, mechanism perfectly. Uh, and, you know, it's, I mean, we've known that the, the, the eccentric contractions do this for a long time because the exact same calcium ion accumulation that causes uh, the muscle damage also causes low frequency fatigue, which you were just talking about, um, which is another form of post-workout fatigue that relates to calcium ion accumulation. So whenever we have more low frequency fatigue, we're always going to get more calcium ion accumulation. So the two things really just go hand in hand. And we always see that happening as well, which is a very, very interesting observation, but again, pushes us more towards the model of calcium ion accumulation rather than um, yeah, mechanical tension producing muscle damage okay so then the one thing to tie this back into what we were talking about earlier was when we for people who don't um who are, who are like oh i'm lost at everything that you guys are talking about right now when we we train a muscle at a longer muscle length we open up those stretch 
activated ion channels like you're talking about and the amount of calcium ions get kind of flooded into uh, the cell. And so ultimately when we have to have something that removes those calcium ions uh, from the cytoplasm. So generally that's done by the mitochondria. And when we talked about earlier with the amount of mitochondria density is going to have a direct effect on the protective mechanism. So for somebody who wants to tie all this in together and the repeated bout effect, when we have some of that fiber type shifting, what happens is one of the protective effects, effects is, is that we have a higher amount of mitochondrial density. We have greater mitochondrial density in those slightly slower twitch muscle fibers. So then that's part of the protective effect. So you get all these calcium ions that get dumped in there. The protective effect, protective effect is the fiber type shifting is part of that. So that way it can better deal with the, that particular thing happening, the calcium ions getting dumped in there. So that's one of the things that happens um, with those longer muscle length trainings. It's something you and I think, I think we talked about this is like when you don't have a muscle that benefits from those longer links and what really occurs is it's not that we ever said and we clarified this that they don't grow at all from those it's just that you have to figure out if the juice is worth the squeeze meaning that you're going to accrue more calcium ion related fatigue now for somebody that goes oh it's just localized that's not necessarily true because we ended up with a systematic central fatigue effect due to the increased inflammation i don't know do we want to go there quickly because that's the one of the bullet points is that we when the calcium ions create this muscle damage uh due to the basically the inflammation there's an inflammation process that occurs after the muscle damage that also creates central fatigue as well so as you, if you're doing these workouts where you have all these longer muscle links and you're creating uh, more calcium unrelated fatigue, in the post days following that, you end up with more central fatigue as well due to that inflammation process. Yeah, there's some really nice data showing that the inflammatory process that we experience in the post workout period, which we've been describing, uh, also uh, basically elements of that inflammatory process circulate through the bloodstream. The brain can detect them and then experiences uh, feelings of fatigue, which then create a supraspinal central nervous system fatigue response. So yes, absolutely. I mean, if somebody is going into the gym and absolutely battering a muscle, you know, on a Monday, maybe, you know, kind of uh, sort of bench presses or whatever is famous for doing on a Monday and then they come back on a Tuesday <laughs> and they try and squat you know then potentially that bench press workout creating damage you know in the upper body is then going to have a negative effect on uh, the Tuesday workout by lowering the maximum level of recruitment that we can achieve for a given level of effort and they're not really ever going to necessarily notice that that's happening you know they're just going to notice maybe they feel a little bit tired and it's just going to be a, a really a kind of negative effect on their ability to to stimulate hypertrophy especially more advanced lifters where you know maxing recruitment is a really critical issue Yep. Yep. And like I said, that hundred percent comes back to for guys who more advanced, how they're setting up their split and they're doing movement sequencing is going to play a huge part in motor unit recruitment. Because if you're doing a bunch of, that's one of the, I think the reasons why you and I get somewhat, I would say frustrated that the consistent like the repeated, well, there's a mounting body of evidence on the longer muscle link stuff is because if somebody is trying to approach their programming and really maximize their programming, then you have to weigh out the fatigue effects of those longer muscle links that they're going to have. And somebody thinks that it's just localized. It's not just localized. If you're, like you said, if you're doing a Monday and you're, you're doing your bro split on Monday and you're going into a bunch of bench presses and flies and a whole bunch of chest stuff, well, that's great. 
it's not just the chest that you have to worry about in terms of fatigue. It's about the inflammation process that happens due to that muscle damage that will also create, like you said, the, uh, the ability to downregulate our ability to recruit motor units in the subsequent days in those sessions due to that inflammation process. So there's any of those, all of those, and again, it's bottlenecked all back. We end up with central fatigue uh, related to calcium ions. So all of that stuff has an impact on the subsequent days of workouts, uh, even if you're not training that muscle group again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I'm just going to kind of pick up on what you said about mounting body of evidence because it drives me absolutely up the wall. <laughs> um, basically, when, when people say mounting body of evidence, what I hear, and this may not be fair, what I hear is, here I have five studies that show what the thing, the time, the outcome, the time I'm talking about is 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 more likely to happen, and you only have two studies that show something different. And I'm going to compare my five studies, which show, you know, in favour of what I want to uh, argue, and you've only got two studies showing, you know, in favour of what you want to argue. And it's almost like people are basically saying, oh, if we have a, more studies showing this thing, then it's more likely to be correct. Well, hang on a second, science doesn't work like that. Basically, we've got to understand how things work. You know, and if I've got two studies that show, you know, this particular outcome, why do they show that particular outcome? What's the underlying mechanism? Why are they okay, doing that? Okay, that comes back to, yes, that comes back to what I said earlier. Mechanistically, exactly. if you don't understand mechanistically why the outcomes happen, then your five studies may not be showing what you claim that they're showing. The biceps, exactly. the biceps research that has kept coming out, all you have to look at is the leverages. And you're like, well, you're just training the biceps where they have great leverage. So they, they, it's not a longer muscle link. That's not what's occurring there. But if you don't understand the modeling and the mechanisms, then somebody just looks and says, we trained the biceps at a longer length that grew better there. They're administered from stretch media hypertrophy. And I'm like, well, did you even bother looking at the the where the biceps have leverage and elbow flexion? Because all you did was you actually loaded it where they have the best leverage. That's all that happened. Exactly. I mean, if, if, if we've got all, seven, say, we, you know, I'm just made, making numbers up here, you know, if we've got, you know, two studies showing one thing, which, you know, is is, is, is in one direction, another five studies showing something different in a different direction, and people are saying, oh, it's literally five versus two, and that's the only conversation we need to have. That's just fundamentally misunderstanding how things work. If we approach that problem physiologically and we say, here are the physiological reasons why those two studies showed that outcome and these five studies showed a different outcome, and we now understand why the entirety of the literature goes in the direction it's going in, we now have an understanding that spans beyond comparing five studies with two studies. And it actually says we now understand the whole literature. We know why it does that, and we know why we're getting the results we're getting. <laughs> and it actually makes sense physiologically, you know, referencing back to things like neuromechanical matching, like tension relationships force velocity relationships anything that's fundamental to exercise science we're not literally just walking away from exercise science and saying we've got five studies versus two studies and that's what <laughs> it makes literally no sense so it's like people are just comparing things without having any kind of context for those comparisons you know so i think ultimately I, it really really annoys me when people kind of play almost like playing a card game with 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 kind of studies saying well i've only got five showing this two showing something different that's not <laughs> how it works <laughs> i got a pair and you got a full house the full house wins right <laughs> I mean, so honestly, the, what i think about that is remember a while back we were comparing that one bicep study that come out it was pretty funny and um it was the 
the one that has happened over and over and been repeated over and over, and I don't know why they keep repeating it, like do something, anything different, but is the using the barbell, uh, the preacher curl with the barbell, and they train the bottom half of the ROM up to, I think it's 70, 68 degrees, and I know it's, uh, seven, it's either 68 or 70 degrees, because it's like perfectly matched up with the Murray study that looks at the internal moment arms, and I remember laughing at that, I'm like, well, it's almost, they did it almost exactly to the measurement, so they did half of a preacher barbell curl or a dumbbell curl, one or the other. I think one time was a dumbbell curl, one was a preacher curl. And they trained the bottom half of the ROM and then the top half of the ROM. And then, so then the, uh, the, everybody was running around saying the biceps grew from better from longer muscle links. And then the other study I sent you, and I don't know why I didn't look at it, but it was really funny. You, it was the inclined dumbbell curl compared to the preacher curl. And then you said, what's those, that black, those black bars at the top. And it was the resistance profile. And you said, they just, they just did the same study. And I remember laughing because that's exactly what happened. They just, they used an exercise with basically the same resistance profiles with the incline where they stressed it more at the top or more at the bottom of the one. And we got one that got stressed more where the biceps have leverage grew better biceps, like no kidding. That's how it's going to work every single time. If anything, all these studies keep doing is proving neuromechanical matching and they don't even realize it, but nobody else looks at that thing just goes, well, you mean if you stress the muscle the most where it has the best leverage, it'll grow better. Like no kidding, but that's the principle of neuromechanical matching, and they keep proving that. And this whole the whole quote unquote scientific evidence based community keeps screaming the muscle grew better at longer lengths. I'm like, no, it actually just grew better where it had best leverage. So if you're going to stress a muscle where it has best leverage, it's going to grow really well. No kidding. That's a no really kidding concept, when, right? It's really strange because when people think about it in a different context, they understand it. So if we're talking about the hip joint, for example, people understand that training the glute in a shortened position is going to be better than training in a lengthened position because we're actually creating better involvement of the glute in that movement because that's where it has best leverage. And people understand that, at least, you know, I see that being understood to a larger extent. But suddenly when you're talking about a different muscle group, people forget that and they forget the fact that if you're uh, looking at full elbow uh, kind of ranges of motion, you've got better leverage for the biceps in the stretch position, you've got better leverages for the brachioradialis in the contracted position. If you don't measure brachioradialis because you're only measuring so none of these that's the funny thing about the bicep studies, they did measure they oh if they measured, I would guarantee money if they measured the brachioradialis in along with it separately from the biceps brachy in those studies, they would have seen growth in those half range of motions where they loaded it at the top. Exactly, because that's basically exactly the same thing that we happen we see happening in, in other in other joints in the body. It's just the for some reason people forget that this principle applies. They're happy that it applies in specific context, but then suddenly when you translate it to a different context, people forget. And I think ultimately it's the fundamental principle that's always applying. And I think that it tying in that in with the the whole discussion about muscle damage um, occurring there is that something that we we were just hitting on is that when you get these muscles that probably don't benefit benefit from longer muscle lengths you're still getting a hypertrophy stimulus i want to be clear about that you train a muscle at a longer muscle length that doesn't benefit from stress i feel like we tried to clear that up and then of course so because social media the way it is if we say a muscle doesn't benefit from stretch media hypertrophy it gets extrapolated into a muscle doesn't grow at all there at that length. I'm like, nobody ever said that. What we're saying is, is that extra been or a very specific type of adaptation is not occurring due to that, which is sarcomeogenesis. So I think what 
we try to to kind of give away there is like when people are setting up their training or figuring out a way to mitigate fatigue or minimize it as much as possible, that training muscles at these longer muscle lengths that don't benefit from chest media hypertrophy or for people who are just wanting to maintain those adaptations and they're doing all these longer muscle lengths, what they're really doing and they don't even necessarily realize it. And I do a hundred percent know this anecdotally from my groups, from my own training is when you minimize those longer muscle lengths for people who have already got those adaptations, you absolutely will see your other training sessions improve due to the fact that you've mitigated that fatigue way more significantly. I saw somebody program, you know, it was like, it was a session. I remember thinking, my gosh, I wouldn't be able to train for days after that now with understanding how I know to implement this stuff. And it was like squats, hacks, lunges. It was all just uh, RDLs. It was one, it was longer muscle length. It was like, it was like four or five long muscle lengths, one after another. And I thought to myself, for an advanced guy who's already got all these adaptations and whatever, all he's really doing there is incurring more and more and more fatigue. And his sessions are going to be incredibly uh, less, like just way less productive than could be if he actually moves some of that stuff around. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's really one of the critical uh, areas of advanced training programs. That, you know, we can uh, sort of help improve. It's just sort of dialing back the amount of stretch position exercises um and and kind of replacing them with exercises that are not quite so quite so muscle damaging but yeah ultimately you know um so kind of where have we got to uh, at this point i think we've covered pretty much everything now haven't we yeah and what i was actually so from the practical application from your standpoint because um you've worked with lots of of high low other high level coaches teams and stuff like that what are some of the ways that you have done programming to kind of for for people who already have these adaptations or are more advanced definitely whether it's athletic advanced and athletic fields or whether advanced uh, muscularly what are some of the ways that you have implemented program your own programming for them in order to help get them past either plateaus or to help mitigate some of these fatigue mechanisms well i mean that's that's kind of a subset of a much bigger kind of uh, conversation about you know what are we doing that's different between intermediate and advanced and um but ultimately just in terms of this very very See, that's called thing, what that's called is setting up to one of the next podcasts chris that's like setting it up so that people will be like oh my gosh i want to hear about that so where i was going with that was exactly uh see that was my setup segue that you did the spot was that when you understand uh these mechanisms that occur at training muscles at at certain lengths and stuff like that, you absolutely can make your training infinitely more productive, especially people who are more advanced um, can really make their training far more productive by understanding these mechanisms and how to implement them into your training modalities. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess what I'm adding there is just sort of setting the context for that conversation that we probably sounds like we're going to do in in the future yeah but, i think that um, was your to, to give people a little backstory you sent me an email the other day and we, we've kind of been or you started brainstorming and i added a, a few little pieces to it was what um what are the differences that people have to start making in their training in order to kind of eke out that last you know five pounds seven pounds of of muscle mass that it seems to be elusive for a lot of people once they kind of hit 
I, I said one time, and this made people upset, and it wasn't clearly to make anyone upset. And I said, I think after probably seven to nine years, somewhere around that range of really intelligent training, you've probably maxed out most of what you're going to get naturally. And people got really mad. I think they got really mad because if they've been training for 12 or 15 years and they're, you know, they're natural, they don't want to hear that there's nowhere else to go from there. I mean, but people are still going to the gym you know, thinking they're going to walk out looking like the rock when they've been 175 pounds for the last five years. And I'm saying, well, genetically, you know, every, all of us have limitations on size and strength. And the second thing is, unless you're going to, you know, get on anabolics or you're going to stay natural, then I think after the first probably seven years, you're going to be around, if you've been training intelligently, now, if you've been training using good training principles, you're going to be clear, pretty close to your to your ceiling however i do think and there's something that you and i were, were kind of looking over in that in in the the uh, the ideas you sent me in the email something we were discussing prior to this podcast today was that what are some things we can really start looking at to get that last bit of like really maximizing the amount of potential someone has muscularly and when you start breaking it down there is a lot of things that we can do different to get that right it's more than you it's more than doing more of the big compounds and I mean, progressive overload is still a part, but there is a lot of other moving pieces that you can kind of get in place to maximize greater muscle growth. It's, it really does exist. Now it is more nuanced. So you, one of the things we said was you go from being where you can get away with a lot of less quote unquote optimal stuff to getting to a point where it does have to be very nuanced to get that last bit of muscular growth out. Yeah, absolutely. I think ultimately it's it's about identifying the physiological differences between an intermediate and advanced lifter and then and then moving from those fundamental physiological differences and saying, what does that then mean in practice? And ultimately this comes back to your question of just a few minutes ago, which is to say, you know, if we're dealing with a, an advanced lifter rather than an intermediate lifter and we recognize that we're trying to reduce amount of fatigue uh, calcium related fatigue and muscle damage that that advanced lifter is experiencing for reasons that we'll cover in a future podcast um you know what can we do well there's basically um very very easily uh, kind of ways that we can identify um things uh, that will reduce calcium ion and related fatigue now they fall into two categories essentially there's going to be things that reduce the uh duration of time that we're actually activating the muscle fibers for because the more that we uh, activate the muscle fibers, the more that we're going to experience calcium ion accumulation. And then secondly, we want to reduce the amount of uh, stretch that the muscle fibers are experiencing uh, when they're activated. So that's going to cause extracellular calcium ions to enter the muscle fibers. So basically, those two physiological observations are going to determine how we then look at training variables for the advanced lifter. Because obviously, when we talk about um, you know, calcium ion uh, accumulation due to muscle fiber activation, we're going to have to avoid things like um, lighter loads, higher repetition ranges, because we're going to be activating muscle fibers for longer periods of time. We're going to have to avoid things like higher volumes because the same thing is going to happen. We're just going to keep creating massive amounts of calcium ion accumulation due to those uh, longer periods of time that we're activating the muscle fibers for, you know. We're going to try and probably avoid where possible, not always possible, but we might try and avoid training all the way to muscular failure, especially on multiple sets, because that, again, is going to cause more duration of time spent muscle fiber activated and ultimately more calcium ion accumulation. And arguably, we might also, you know, maybe add in there, you know, training with slower tempos could potentially cause more calcium ion accumulation because it causes less metabolite related fatigue. But, you know, that one's never really been tested in a lot of detail. There's indications that that's true, but I've never actually seen any uh, 
something to, to show that it does happen. On the stretch and activated iron channel side, obviously we've got eccentric contractions. If we can avoid those, not always possible. If we can avoid those, that could potentially be beneficial. And stretch position exercises, which is kind of where we started from when we uh, engaged in this particular area. But those are really the only training variables that are going to make a massive difference for those physiological reasons. And what's interesting about that is you and I kind of, um, we're kind of on a different path, I think, than I see a lot of what's going on now because of the misinterpretation of these longer, quote unquote, longer muscle link studies. So there's been an overwhelming amount of people now like, oh, you have to train, train all your muscles at longer muscle links. And that's where you're going to get the greatest amount of growth. They absolutely, people who keep saying this absolutely do not understand these mechanisms. They don't understand. They haven't looked at the research. Um, and interestingly enough, you and I have talked to people over the last few weeks who are very well educated, smart in these areas and have not just not, not gone into the research and looked at into the very fact that these there's limitations on the potential for that stuff for this quote unquote stretch media hypertrophy. And yet we're not going to see the protective mechanisms. The reason why I brought this up earlier happen early, but they're also very limited. So one of the things we we didn't even touch on because it was tied in with the metabolic uh, stress podcast was was that um in another one of the Damas studies, we're gonna have to figure out a way just every time we say Damas will do a shot in a in a so in one of Felipe's it's a drink the Felipe Damas drinking studies, Stu Phillips. And one of theirs in one of theirs, uh they looked, remember this, they saw um that there was an increase in myops up to I think it was eight sets for muscle group, but then and the increase happened all the way up to 12 sets, but no extra muscle growth. Now think about that. That means all that extra myops that's happening and mixed muscle protein synthesis that's occurring is just to do the damage. So there wasn't any, any increase in hypertrophy and adding that volume on top of that. And that was something you were just hitting on. was like, if we mitigate that fatigue, right? There's no, no, no words. Here was my, where I, how do I kind of thought process this out? If you have, if you're doing those extra sets, then that means the only thing that they're doing is causing more muscle damage than you're already incurring, which means that no matter how you slice it in the subsequent training sessions, there is going to be a reduction in motor unit recruitment due to the central fatigue that's occurring from that extra volume. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think ultimately when people are doing, you know, tons and tons and tons of sets in every workout, then a big chunk of those uh, sets at the, at the end of that workout or the end of each exercise are junk volume that's literally just causing more. Just causing damage. more fatigue, just causing yeah. more fatigue that, that it actually impairs either from a motor unit recruitment standpoint or literally from a mechanical tension standpoint will literally impair either one of those mechanisms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just good good to re remind people really there that when we lose myofibrils due to the damage process, that re re removes the number of cross bridges or reduces the number of cross bridges we can generate, which obviously then reduces the potential for mechanical stimulus uh, from that muscle fiber. So absolutely, there's, there's, there's kind of so many physiological reasons to kind of say, you know, doing a workout that creates a lot more muscle damage whether it's because it's lighter loads whether it's because it's training all the way to failure on multiple sets you know whether it's higher volumes whether it's 
stretch position exercises i'm probably repeating myself at this point but you know <laughs> whether whether it's because of any of those reasons you know those workouts are not going to be as effective as people want them to be and especially in the advanced lifter category where we're trying to optimize absolutely everything for reasons that we'll get into you know uh, in a future podcast that's but, gonna i realize today as we, we kind of you know expound on that that's going to be a really fun topic to to get into i think it's going to surprise a lot of people I, I do too, because I, that's a question I get asked about the most. I think we can go kind of do a cradle to grave, almost um, like uh, muscle growth from the time that you walk into the gym first session to the point where you've been training for 12 years and how, how does that training evolve or what did it look like? But coming back to this and I, I'll, I'll kind of wrap us up on this one is that as we've done these last two, something that's really stuck out in my head is is that not only do metabolic stress and muscle damage not drive hypertrophy, they're actually direct enemies of the whole process. That is something I don't know why it just hit me uh, a few days ago. And I was like, if we actually remove the metabolic stress component, right? And we remove the muscle damage component and we're just left with mechanical tension and we didn't have either one of those, we would see massive amounts of hypertrophy, right? Uh, the, because the metabolic stress ends up incurred. We increase the amount of central fatigue that we experience within the training session as if metabolic stress increases. If we have muscle damage, then we have both. We have a decrease in motor unit recruitment and we have a decrease uh, in mechanical tension that fibers can experience. So we end up with... Basically, not only did those not look like drivers, but they actually look like detriments in a way. Uh, muscle damage definitely is more of a detriment uh, comparatively if we could reduce it. I think that's kind of what you see uh, with the, what was it, the one anabolic uh, where they gave them super doses of, super max doses of testosterone and the guys just sitting around on the couch grew more muscle than uh, the guys who were actually training, but natural. That's what I go back to. So you have to think that probably MOPS was elevated that whole time. Um, that's the only other way, the only way that could be occurring was that just myofibrillar protein synthesis has to be elevated that whole time because those guys had never used testosterone before. So it was a, a physiological response to those doses. But it also in a way, you know, I've talked about this is, is that people who are on significant amounts reduce that amount of basically recovery time that's happening from some of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's very little literature to tell us. We don't really have anything. We don't have, like, I think that's, like, one of the only ones, right? Like, that's the only legitimate anabolic steroid study that there is out there. Nobody out there, ethically, you couldn't do a, a study on people on, like, trend and DECA and stuff. I don't think. Maybe you could. But I, I don't know how you get around it ethically when stuff like trend's not even made for people. Yeah, I mean, I have uh, kind of speculations about how these things work, but I don't really have good data to show people, so I tend not to talk about it very much. <laughs> That's why I always tell people if they come at me, and I'm like, they're like, well, Chris said this. I'm like, I promise you, if he he's going to be publicly open about stating something, there's going to be a significant amount of data to support what he's saying. <laughs> um, so I think, like I said, that that wraps us up pretty well. I, I know that it will probably continue because this is what won't happen until, Till a couple of things. I think the at base level, and you've talked about this, you and I have talked about this on other levels. One of the things that really needs to occur for this ideology to change is that they would have to start teaching this different at 
both the university level and the personal trainer level. That's the two issues where we kind of run into this is they're like, well, I'm certified in all these different certifications. And they actually explained to us that muscles have micro tears and they're built back up bigger. That's how hypertrophy occurs. And they're like, well, I've, I've heard everything from I'm a kinesiology student to I'm an anatomy and physiology student and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I'm sorry, like just because they were teaching you guys some stuff that was hypothesized 20 years ago doesn't mean that that's actually what the research currently states. Yeah, and I think ultimately most people who spend time in this space realize that that is uh, what's happening uh, and always does happen, probably always will happen. I mean, there's always going to be a delay in terms of what uh, we can see in the data and the literature and what people are being you know, maybe taught in, in various different programs. Um, but I think ultimately it's just about saying, you know, here is what we think the data is saying at the moment and really just trying to always uh, bring it back to physiological principles because if, if there's anything that should have become clear over the last two of these two podcasts the metabolic stress podcast and the muscle damage uh, podcast is that we never really had reasons to make these uh, kind of hypotheses in the first place they were actually poor hypotheses you know uh, we really shouldn't have made them in the first place because they weren't physiological there were better physiological explanations for what was going on at the time even at the time they were available to us in terms of things like the length tension relationship passive tension you know we knew about all of those things at least uh, maybe not to the degree that we know now but we did know about them and we could have uh, speculated or hypothesized in a different direction would have been much 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 more physiological that's, that's something that's really 100 percent. what's what is wild is it was a week or so ago when we were in getting prepared for these when i got down the calcium ion rabbit hole for a bit i'm like man this data goes back a long ways i'm like this has been there forever and nobody ever just plugged it in and it what's what's really great is once you go back through the data it's so concrete and consistent and once you plug it into that model it's it's, it's per, works perfectly and you're like well we didn't need to do all that stuff because all of this other data existed and once you plug that model into the like that fatigue model in and that muscle damage model once you plug this in it answers all the questions and it goes back i i, I want to say decades. there was one like that was it's yes it was like 93 yeah. was one i found yeah. Yeah. uh that actually explains this whole thing top to bottom like perfectly and it goes back to like 93 and if you keep going back through the literature the great thing about the calcium ion related fatigue is that it it's so consistent like there's nothing that really changes because they just look at this one mechanism and they're like well this is what's occurring and then we got all these other wild theories that are going on in the muscle building community that are like maybe this happens maybe that happens I'll bring it up on another one when we get into like maybe mechanical tension or, or whatever topic that we go to, but we actually have even have studies going back on mechanical tension to the seventies that understand that muscle growth occurred due to mechanical tension. And then they just completely dismissed it and kept looking at other factors, but it's a lot of the data that we talk about when people are like this or that, or they, they try to get argumentative. If you actually go back and look, forever and ever it's been there um and i'll always give you a hundred percent credit for that you were able to piece all of these things together separately and put them in place but that was what struck me about the calcium ion related stuff going into this one that i was pretty surprised at just to be honest was how far back the literature goes decades and it's completely consistent across animal human models and then it's testable and it just once you plug it into the muscle damage model it fits perfectly in every scenario 
Absolutely. And the really, really crazy thing, which we didn't even get to when we were talking about this earlier in the podcast, and probably nobody's going to be listening at this point, but I'll mention it anyway, <laughs> is that when we're talking about calcium unrelated uh, muscle damage uh, events, basically that's always how muscle damage happens. So if somebody bruises themselves and creates what we call a contusion in the medical literature, somebody bruises themselves, then that bruising, obviously we see the uh, kind of the, the, the blood vessels uh, damage, but you know, also there's going to be muscle fiber damage. When that muscle fiber damage happens, basically the, uh, the the kind of impact trauma causes a bursting of the cell membrane. That cell membrane then allows extracellular calcium ions into the fiber. And then after that moment, the exact same process of damage uh, occurs as happens after exercise. So essentially, when we cause a bruise, we're causing exactly the same muscle damage process as we cause uh, as a result of any kind of exercise that we're doing. And yet bruising obviously doesn't cause hypertrophy. So, you know, one of those really interesting kind of uh, comparisons, which when I raised this with people about five, six, seven years ago, and I said to them, hey, bruising doesn't cause hypertrophy. Why would we expect muscle damage due to exercise causing hypertrophy? They said, oh, those are different. I was like, no, they're not. They're actually exactly the same. That was actually one of the things that I got into. You go down the rabbit hole of mechanisms and you're like, well, anytime we have contusions, we actually see almost the exact same process occur um, physiologically. And clearly nobody out there, we could just start hurting ourselves and just cause all sorts of massive muscle growth everywhere. And clearly that doesn't happen. And, and I've I'd had this argument with some incredibly smart people, and they literally just keep coming back to the fact and keep repeating at me that muscle damage during exercise is different from muscle damage from a contusion. Okay, then ex- tell me the mechanism. This is this is the way you and I end up debating everything at this point. Then fine, tell me the mechanism is differently. Don't like just give me the abstract answer. What is the different mechanism? What is, I had this conversation with a PhD a few weeks ago, and I said, okay, that's fine. Explain to me the me- mechanistically what is different. And then they never have that answer. And that's what we talked earlier. We said, when we're wanting to understand these mechanisms, I do think they're important for us, especially if we're trying to, if we're trying to get that completeness in scientifically in muscle physiology, Understanding the mechanisms is virtually everything. Understanding the outcomes doesn't always tell us a whole lot, but if we understand the mechanisms and we have a model, we put that stuff together, then when somebody has that particular argument and says, okay, well, it's different with when you happen from exercise. I hear that all the time. It's like, well, it's different when it happens with muscle contractions. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Explain to me the mechanism that's occurring that's different. They never know what to say right there at that point. I'm like, that's cool. If that is a real answer, that's okay. I will accept one and I'll change my stance. If number two things, sh- tell me mechanistically what is happening that's different and then show me the data that supports that that mechanism is creating these different outcomes. And which brings there's- us back to the first part of the entire of this podcast, which is what we're saying is that most people who look at damage after exercise think it's being caused by the tearing of muscle fibers due to mechanical tension. And we've just spent, you know, this time today uh, explaining why that's not the case. And actually it's a calcium ion accumulation process and it's identical in any muscle damage situation, whether it's contusions or, 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 you know, kind of exercise or whatever. So ultimately, you know, it isn't different. It's actually exactly the same. And that is just one other reason why we should never have ever proposed muscle damage as a mechanism for hypertrophy in the first place. It just literally, 
literally makes no physiological sense. Uh, but that's, as you say, why we have to understand how this stuff works in order to be able to make sense of the data. We can't just, I mean, science is littered with examples of people not controlling variables and therefore finding an answer that's not actually correct. Uh, you know, that's exactly what we tend to do if we don't understand mechanistically what we're actually testing. If we ignore the principle of neuromechanical matching, we're going to find that weird things happen that we're not expecting. You know, we've got to take all of the physiology that we understand already into account when we are constructing and interpreting studies. And the same thing applies with muscle damage. If we don't have a clear understanding, which has been presented to us by, as you said, calcium ion accumulation literature, it's been very clearly presented to us. And it's very, very obvious how muscle damage is happening. Once we take that into account, everything makes sense. And we don't need to have uh, kind of weird hypotheses about how muscle damage is stimulating hypertrophy because it's clearly not. It's just basically getting in the way. Every, every time you say something about that weird, um, I... I just get the Pacific Rim meme. Yeah, that's I just start laughing because that's every time I ask them to explain the mechanism, that's the the meme that pops in my head. One day you'll not reveal what that is. Um, and then I, I'll explain this one and then we'll 100% wrap it up is that the reason why mechanistically it's important to understand is the very study that we shared with each other last week where they were talking about I think it was as much as five RIRs, the same as going to failure or training one, one RIR. And mechanistically, when they set that study up, they didn't standardize velocity loss per individual. They just used a velocity loss standard for everybody, and that's going to be different per individual. So it completely skewed the outcomes. Well, if you don't understand some of these implementations of the research, then you'll just look at that and go, well, this study says this. And you go, well, but if you understand those mechanisms and how they work, you understand why that study is completely flawed. It's back to playing cards again. It's like just yeah. saying how many studies have you got to prove your point versus how many studies have you got to prove your point. It's like that's literally where we've we've ended up. People are just literally looking at a number of studies and go, I've got five, you've only got two, therefore I'm right. I'm like, well, hang on a minute, that's not how science works. I want to understand why those studies found that result, why these studies found this result. If you've got that mechanistic understanding and, and it's related to physiology, not stuff you've made up, but actually related to you know physiology that's you know kind of been published and goes back you know, decades in the case of fundamental things like, you know, the way fatigue works, the way, um, you know, the length tension relationship works, the way force velocity relationship works, if you anchor your uh, understanding in those physiological mechanisms, then things start to become clearer and we actually understand what's going on. And I think it's just, you have to put the work in, really. I think that's the thing is nobody wants to put the work in. And once you actually do build an understanding of these things, um, and we've covered many times, uh, most of this research becomes very clear. Like you said, uh, we'll start, you always come up with a, a good metaphor in the card playing one. It's like, I got my, I got my seven cards. So you're two cards. So I win. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not actually how it works. All right, Chris, let's wrap this one up. Uh, where can everybody find you uh, on social and, and uh, to support you? Uh, well, we'll put the link to my Patreon in the um, in the podcast notes yep. because that's where we'll have a bunch of uh, studies that support what we've been explaining today, and they can find me uh, elsewhere on Instagram. Obviously, linked from my Patreon. So the best best thing to do is just go to the Patreon site and, and work from there. Tons of free stuff on Patreon. It's not just subscriber only. Everything uh, that uh, is related to the podcast is free to view, and a lot of other stuff on the FAQ is free to view as well. Yep, and I think if somebody goes to your Instagram, which is just Chris Beardsley, you have it's a Chris link. Chris A. Beardsley. 
Chris A. Beardsley, and they can. You have I a that Chris Beardsley. Oh, okay, well that's that's <laughs> really okay. So there's um I didn't never even thought about that. It's Chris A. I do think if they just type in Chris Beardsley on the Instagram search, you come up first because probably you, yes. You have a bigger following than Chris Beardsley does. Chris A. Beardsley has a bigger <laughs> following than Chris Beardsley does. But uh, you have also have a, a link in your bio. There has tons of free stuff and the FAQ where you cover a multitude of topics. Uh, if somebody goes to my Instagram, uh, Lift Run Bank One. Uh, I have the same thing. Most of the stuff is covered uh, in the link in my bio, but uh, you can also find me at Train Heroic for all my programs. Uh, Chris, that's going to wrap us up for today. I think what we said we're going to cover in the next one is kind of uh, how to really, truly maximize your greatest amount. Let's even call this the natty potential, right? Because that's really what we're looking at, how to maximize your, the, your natural potential and muscle growth. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thanks for everybody who listened. We'll see you guys next time.